Hello and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, Liam Edwards, and thank you for once again joining me to banish a new guest for the 36th time. I'm incredibly excited to say that this week I have quite the treat for you. My guest this week, although no longer working in games media, is still one of the finest reviewers to have graced our industry. Having started his career at GameSpot back in 2006, for nine years he wrote and presented some of GameSpot's most memorable features and reviews, and his face became so synonymous with the site. Since leaving GameSpot in July of last year, he's been on quite a whirlwind adventure through the other side of the games industry, having weighed anchor at Tryon Worlds, working on the MMO Davillion, and then later Atlas Reactor, before moving on to work at Cleaversoft on the platform at Earth Knight for Sony, and finally, a year since leaving GameSpot in July of this year, he moved all the way to Belgium. Um, the wonderful Europe uh, to join the incredible team at Larian Studios, the uh, creators of Divinity Original Sin, who are also working on Divinity Original Sin 2, which I imagine some of you are very excited about. My guest this week is the very wonderful Mr. Kevin Van Ord. Hello, Kevin. Hi. You know a, a weird amount about me. <laughs> I think you know Don't worry. more about me than I know about me. <laughs> Don't worry, every guest gets as freaked out as you, um, or they tend to be like, oh, thanks for the nice things, and now I'm going to leave. <laughs> so, Kevin, it is absolutely fantastic to have you on today. Um, how are you doing? I, I'm doing really, really well, actually. It's a, it's a, nice, uh, it's a nice evening here in, in Ghent, Belgium. It's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's lovely here, too. If you haven't been, I mean, people should go to Belgium. Nobody tells you that Belgium is so great. And then you come and discover that they've got this amazing bread and all this beer and chocolate and stuff like that. And suddenly you're like fat when you weren't before. I mean, I, you know, it's not like I was skinny before, but now it's like, oh, God, I've gained 15 pounds and I should really get this under control. Yeah, this is fantastic here. That sort of honeymoon period where you first arrive in a place like when I, I remember when I first arrived in Japan uh, almost two years ago now. Just like, oh, all of the Japanese curry, all of the Japanese ramen, oh, and then all of a sudden, like, whoa, I put on 10 pounds, what's happened? Right? <laughs> but but on the other hand, Japan does a lot of, it has enough food that, that turns you off of food, that for me at least, it kind of even things out a little bit. Uh, That's very true. Yeah. It's very true, but I can fall into a whole world of eating Japanese curry pretty much nonstop. I, it's like my kryptonite. I really do enjoy that. So, mm. Kevin... You are in Belgium. You've moved to yeah, Belgium. Yeah. Uh, that's crazy. Have you you lived your whole life in America up in America until that point? Correct. Yeah, totally. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, I'd only. Well, I mean, I grew up in Pennsylvania, um, but I lived most of my life on the East Coast until I'm or around the East Coast. Like the furthest west I lived was Ohio. If that gives you an idea, up until that, up until the the, the time I moved to California. And so I got the job at, at GameSpot, and I moved across the country to California, and then I lived in California. So, um, yeah, my whole life in the U.S., and then suddenly this came up. And, and just to clarify, I'm actually still working on Earth Knight with Cleaversoft, so I'm still okay. like, doing doing that indie game, and, and it's Splitting phenomenal. Yeah, and that game is going to be fantastic. Uh, not to toot my own horn or anything, but I think it's just going to be really, <laughs> really good. So, um, But, yeah, it was a big thing, um, a lot of planning and work went into moving to 
to Belgium, obviously. It's not an easy thing. It's not the kind of thing one just says, you know, today I'm moving to Belgium, and then it happens. Just spinning spinning a globe and then pushing yeah. your finger against it and imagining where you'll live. <laughs> yeah, but I got really lucky. Uh, Larian is just a bunch of great people, and it was a great opportunity for me, and hopefully I can bring something really great to Original Sin 2. And, and of course, now we're on early access, so if you're to- if you're into the whole RPG thing, um, you should go and give us money, um, <laughs> and in return, we'll give you the early access version of Divinity Original Sin 2, which includes most of the first act of the game, obviously okay. an unfinished version of Act 1, um, with, uh, you know, there will be a lot of changes and additions, and there will be new systems and and new characters and things like that to come, but, uh, you know... I like job security, and one good way to give me job security is to buy our game. So it's very true. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I imagine you'll be okay because the first game, obviously, I don't know too much about sales figures, but it seemed like the first game did incredibly well, um, having the PC version come out and be kind of a smash hit, and then the PS4 yeah. version and the PS3 version and all that sort of just. I remember at one point, Divinity Original Sin was huge. Yeah, and the uh, the. You know, the enhanced edition came out for consoles and then, of course, came out for PC as well. And mm. and not only was huge, huge amounts of the game w- was reworked. It was, you know, the whole game was reworked. Um, but then, of course, they did things like I say, I say they we now, but I wasn't there at the time. But, yeah, you know, Larian added all, the, you know, full voice acting and, and all this and the rest. And so, uh, yeah, Original Sin was really, really great. And, and of course, if you would have asked me a year ago saying, you know, we did you know that you're going to be moving to Belgium and working for Larry? And I'm really like, you're out of your freaking mind. You you reviewed it, correct, as well. I, you reviewed I did. Original Sin. I did review Original <laughs> Sin, and it was my it was my personal game of the year. Um, and that's why things like this get really exciting, you know? Um, yeah, I can you, imagine. You go and you work on, on something like this. So I, before we begin, I but I want to tell you a little story about when something happens in the opposite direction. So, of course, I worked at Tryon Worlds for a while. Um, it was my my first design uh, contract after I left GameSpot. And so I worked for Tryon Worlds working on Davillion and an Atlas Reactor. But my first day, and I wish they'd done this because folks at Tryon told me that they wanted to do this but were afraid of scaring me away. Um, I reviewed <laughs> several Tryon games before, of course, working for them. And, you know, I reviewed Rift. Um, which I gave an eight to, so you know that was great. You know yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, Rift was a pretty yeah. good, pretty good game. Yeah, but then I also re- reviewed Defiance, and and I actually liked Defiance a lot uh, in a lot of ways, but it was also not great in a that lot was of the ways. Weird TV tie-in MMO. Wasn't it was. It, it was. It was yeah. the uh, MMO shooter that was actually tied to the sci-fi uh, original series show of the same name, Defiance, and so. I reviewed that and I gave it a six, you know, which is to say that I wasn't extraordinarily impressed. It was a fine game, but I wasn't extraordinarily impressed. I with think that's fair for that game. Yeah. I, remember, I remember a housemate playing that game when it came out and it didn't look too good, but he seemed to be having fun. It was uh, it was fun and troubled and one of those wonky, you know, sort of slightly broken games that clearly wasn't finished before it kind of landed in your in your machine at home and yeah because that's how games are delivered they just sort of they're dropped in by drones and they land into your your, <laughs> your drives um but the the folks at tryon had considered printing up 
the my review of Defiance and leaving it on my desk for the first day <laughs> to uh, you know to, to to welcome me properly to the studio, and uh, I kind I wish they had. Um, but I think they were a little afraid that they would be sending the wrong message. <laughs> but uh, in in this case, you know, you get kind of lucky. You know, I, I you know, I'm with with Larry and in the. But it's actually true that I also reviewed Divinity Two, not to be confused with Divinity Original Sin Two. Divinity Two mm. was a 3D action RPG in the same universe from some years back, and I also reviewed that when I was at, when I was at Gamespot, and I gave that game a six or a six five. I forget which. So it's not as though. You know, I had some kind of, you know, I, it's one of those things where it's not like Larian got any other pass for me or like a pass for me in years past or anything. It just, you know, the stars lined up and, uh, you know, I, I got the chance to work on a game and I'm just super excited to be here. And, and I, I love what we've already done and I love what we're doing now. And it's, it's really hard work <laughs> and you know, don't don't let anybody ever tell you that game developers are lazy because they are not. No, holy cow! Mm. <laughs> yeah, uh, I it's been well, it's getting on for two years since I left game development, so it's my memories are still there of how tough it can be, but there's this oh, they're yeah. fading slowly. They're fading slowly. Um, but let's let's jump back a little bit then, because I think sure many people will know you were a huge personality at GameSpot for a long time, um, for nine years, um, which yeah. is an incredible long time. And, and uh, like you, you know, said, apparently I was the face of the site, which made me kind of imagine I said, what would have happened I, I said people... your face was synonymous. Oh, right. Synonymous. synonymous but I love the, the idea, <laughs> if you were like to pull up GameSpot, I, I have this image of just like my giant <laughs> face plastered all over the page. It's like my giant face is taking over GameSpot. <laughs> well, you anyway. must admit there were times through your period at GameSpot where there would be a review where you would be on camera and that would be the focus point of the site. So to be a picture of you. So I don't think that's too much of a stretch, but obviously GameSpot has had <laughs> multiple people through the years. Obviously oh, of course. Jeff and, and uh, Danny and Greg and you and Carolyn and all these wonderful people over the years as well. Um, but you obviously being a huge part of that. Um, sort of tell me a little bit about how you got your start at GameSpot then, all the way back in 2006. Yeah. Um, so I'll try to make it brief, not one of my strong points. But uh, I, so I had been, well, I mean, I started reading GameSpot like way back in 2000, 2001, or whenever that was. And, and uh, you know, I liked GameSpot a lot. And at some point I became a, a volunteer moderator and, and I wrote lots of reader reviews and things like that. And, and I sort of stumbled into uh, a group of people that were just writing for free for a, you know, for, for their own website. And I said, Oh, Hey, that sounds like fun. I'll do that. And I did that actually uh, somebody who would also join GameSpot later, Carolyn Pettit um, did the same thing with me at that site. We both wrote reviews for a site that at the time was called inside gamer online and it has since gone through a number of name changes, but that was a lot of fun. But, you know, it was only for the fun. I wasn't making any money from it. But uh, eventually, uh, GameSpy took notice, and, and uh, I started writing for GameSpy as a freelancer. And so that was my first paid gig was for reviews writing, was writing reviews for, for GameSpy. Okay. And so I, I did that. And, you know, during the whole time, too, I was still, you know, doing moderator work 
at GameSpot and time I became like basically the head moderator and whatever that was, whatever that was called back in the day. And so things were going along swimmingly, but I had my regular job where I basically did, uh, I, I worked for a company that did banking services um, for nursing homes um, after having been in the hotel industry for longer than I, I, I hope I ever have to think about again. So out of the blue, um, and this would have been in uh, August 2006, I guess. Okay. Um, I got a call from Jody Robinson, who was the community manager at GameSpot. And uh, one of the two community managers at GameSpot, um, her and Bethany Massimilla. And Jody said, hey, we've got this position opening up for a tournament coordinator. And you were the first person we thought of. Would you like to come out? And do an interview. And I was like, yes. <laughs> so they actually, like GameSpot flew me out and I did the interview the next day. Um, not the next day. I did. <laughs> it wasn't that fast. I did the interview, but I flew back that night. It was, I did a, I did a red eye because I had to go to work. Um, but I flew out and uh, did the interview. And it was the strangest job interview I'd ever had because it felt like they were there trying to sell themselves to me rather than the other way around. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun. And I went back, they gave me the job and I was like, okay, I'm ready to do this. And it meant a lot of big life changes, of course, you know, not just professionally, but, but personally. Um, but I did it. I, I put all my stuff in my car, everything that would fit. And that was it. That's all I took with me. And I drove across the country from uh, where I lived in Columbia, Maryland, all the way out to uh, San Francisco. And it changed my life, obviously. And it wasn't long before tournaments just stopped being a thing. Tournaments were part of a program called Game Center. And uh, Game Center didn't last the good news is that I lasted a little bit longer than the Game Center did, and uh, I transitioned into editorial before Game Center was gone. So by the time tournaments were gone, you know I was already on strong footing in editorial. Okay, yeah. But uh, you know, even when I was still doing tournaments, um, Alex Navarro was actually the the editor at Gamespot who was in charge of assigning who did what review. Um, I mean, when I started, you know, all the great, you know, all the, the big GameSpot greats were there that, that people talk about with rightful reverence, like uh, Greg Kasavin and Jeff Gersman. But uh, yeah, um, Alex was the one who assigned the reviews. And so, yeah, that's what I he, he um, assigned me a few things early on, because after a while, it's like you have all these games and only so many people to review them. And it's like, would you like to review this game? And I was like, sure. What is it? And it was, it was, it was, it was a, a hex based war game. Um, one of actually one of the last, I would say that GameSpot really did, um, of that type of game. And so, you know, I reviewed it and pretty soon it was, would you do this? And then my first big assignment came in the form of command and conquer three, before I'd even transitioned um, and a few other things like Resident Evil 4 when it came out on PC the first time uh, when Jade Empire came out on PC but then Command and Conquer 3 was the first real big one like big release no one was touching yeah. it before okay yeah yeah well uh, there was also another factor which is by that time Greg had left and so Greg had gone on 
to move transition to game development as well. And yeah, Greg Kasavin had moved on to game development. He was working for EA, and his the first thing he did was work on Command oh, Conquer yes. Three. Yeah. Towards the end of that, and and I think a, a bit of the decision process on who to have to review that because there were really only two people in house that could really do a strategy game, as far as I remember. One of them was Jason Ocampo, um, and one of them was me. And I think he really wanted to avoid the illusion of somebody that knew Greg really well um, doing the review and, and wanted to give uh, it to somebody okay. who didn't have... Not not that that would have influenced anything, but sometimes you just want to avoid the appearance of something weird. And so it was like, we'll give it to the new guy so it doesn't look like... You know, so, you know, whatever comes out of it, yeah, yeah. you know, we, we won't have to worry about it. And so that was one of the big ones. And then, but the really big one I first remember um, where things just started to happen was Assassin's Creed, probably the original Assassin's Creed. And that was another one of those, like I had just sort of transitioned into editorial and Alex was like, I need somebody to do this game. Because <laughs> so it was like, a brand okay, new IP at the time as well, so yeah, totally. It wasn't. Totally. It wasn't obviously the huge, massive franchise that it is no. these days. Um, I then, remember watching the first trailer and people were like, "Oh, this looks pretty good," but lo and behold, where we're at today, this- and, and, and I thought the original Assassin's Creed was awesome. In fact, my, you know, I got some guff for that first, um, for that first Command and Conquer, that, that Command and Conquer three review because I actually gave it a score higher than what we gave. To Supreme Commander, I wasn't the one who reviewed Supreme Commander because that was that was before me. But they came out the same year, I think, and so it was a big deal that we gave Command and Conquer three point two more higher <laughs> than Supreme Commander. Um, but I'll say that I I stand by that to this day, um, just as I stand by another one of my unpopular things, which was that I was the one to review both. Um, the original Mass Effect as well as the original Assassin's Creed and I gave Assassin's Creed a higher score than Mass Effect <laughs> and and that that chased me around for a while um, but I will totally stand by that so now obviously you've transitioned <laughs> to actually being involved in creating video games uh, you're yeah. seeing through the the other side of the glass, as it were. Um, what I'm interested in sort of first is Greg uh, obviously took a sort of similar path as well, just yeah. sort of moved out and into... Um, Greg has previously been on this show as well. And I'm, I'm wondering, did you sort of speak to him about... Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do? You were like, okay, so now I kind of want to try my hand at making games, being involved in actually creating something, being a bit more creative. Uh, Greg's gone and done it. Um, did yeah. you sort of go to him and ask him a little bit of advice or you were like, I'm set on what I want to do. I'm going to just go for it and see what happens. No, I never talked to Greg about it really. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> um, it's, it's funny because I think Greg is one of the most amazing people, but I never really had a friendship with Greg. He was gone so quickly after I started um, and what's interesting about that is, is that Greg is also, Greg can be very awkward in person in a very charming way. And so I've always been sort of afraid, <laughs> like I'm sort of odd 
in his presence so so that when I'm around him, okay. I start getting awkward too. <laughs> you know how like when you're around somebody that you think is so awesome and you just yeah. can't think of what to say and everything yeah. that falls out of your mouth is just like... Bleh, 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 bleh. I recently had that actually. I was at Tokyo Game Show and I, I finally met someone who I'd, I'd been listening to on podcasts and videos for a numerous amounts of years and I, I just kind of was like, oh... Oh, hello. (laughs) You're that person. (laughs) Right? I'm just like, everything I'm saying is really stupid. (laughs) It's it's weird. And and, and I, and for some reason, I always get that way around Greg, where I'm like, I want to say, you've been so instrumental in, in my life, in spite of us not ever really being close. And and then you want to go and say how much you appreciate somebody. and, And instead, everything that comes out is just mush. And I'm like, hey, dude, um... That Oblivion review is pretty good. And you always have this image like we're going to sit around and like have mimosas and talk about games for 12 hours like a slumber party. Yeah. And then we're going to be best friends forever. <laughs> and and I could never get to that that stage because I'm like I think I'm I think I'm letting my uh, hero worship get a little too overboard with that. Um so we never we never did talk about that to to any extent, but uh I I love Greg to death. Uh, and he was so like he gave me a chance along with Alex and Jeff Gersman at the time moving me over into editorial and hopefully I did them proud um, in in the end. I would say you definitely did. You definitely did, Kevin, of course. (laughs) But (laughs) for a long uh, time, you were the the flag flag bearer for reviews at GameSpot. And obviously uh, talking about, you know, the sort of first couple of big reviews you're doing, huge titles like Assassin's Creed and Mass Effect. Those are obviously very massive pillars of the gaming yeah, sort of yeah. industry. So it's quite the uh, responsibility they enshrined to you. They gave. <laughs> yeah. But obviously, and, yeah, sorry, carry on. No, yes, no, no, no. I was, I, I don't really have anything to add apparently except yeah, but no, it was, <laughs> it was, you know, I, every moment was great and, and no, I, there was no, I wasn't specifically trying to like follow in Greg's path or anything. There was never any point in that. In fact, there was never any desire to get into games development for the longest time. I I saw games writing as the destination. I never, you know, some people worry that games writers or games critics think of it as like, well, if I get into this, then maybe I can start making games. It doesn't really work that way. And in fact, Mm. most people I know that transition out of, like games journalism or games criticism into something else in the industry. It's usually PR um, yeah. or it's usually some other kind of, uh, you know, giving Marketing. some other kind of, uh, you know, uh, aspect of it. And in my case, I really wanted to continue to be creative and I didn't know exactly what that was going to mean for me. Um, so I, I, I spent a bit of time like trying to figure out what it was that I wanted to do and, and how that was going to work. And, and uh, of course you end up applying for a lot of jobs where everybody tells you no, because you're just underqualified or, or what have you. So you got to start with the strengths that you've proven. And then you get that chance while you're doing that to say that you can offer other things too. And, and, and I was really lucky because try on worlds just, they were fantastic with me. I started, you know, on their, you know, on the localization team working on Davillion yeah. Um, which was basically uh, taking the raw translated text and then turning it into something that's actually legible and, and you know, sort of at least halfways, you know, understandable. And 
but then the contract expired and I was like, I'd really like to stay and do something else. And so I transitioned over to Atlas reactor and boy, that was the, the most amazing thing. Um, I was really proud. I'm really proud of that game, which also, by the way, just came out this week. Officially is now launched. The game is now launched Atlas reactor. Okay. So you should go play Atlas reactor too. <laughs> and if you like the, uh, I made one of the maps. So if you like the cloud spire map, you should tell me how much you love the cloud spire map. <laughs> but that was really sad actually, because I had designed that map, um, before, you know, so when you do map design, you know, you design it, but there's no art in it yet. Um, so you're always playing on a map. That's basically just a bunch of blocks yes. and stuff. And, mm-hmm. uh, when I left, when I left Tryon, the, the map didn't have any art in it yet. So, so it wasn't quite there. No, the first time I ever played the map with art in it was after I had left and the game went into, and it was the second map to go into the game. Um, so beta, you know, alpha players got a chance to play it and then eventually, of course, open and, you know, closed and open betas both and now mm-hmm. in full release. But it was really interesting to, uh, you know, then to see my map come to life after I'd left. That was really, that was sort of cool and interesting. But uh, I, I'm really lucky that I've worked everything that I've worked on has been really cool in its own way. So, Excellent. Well, we are going to talk a little bit as we go through these games, a bit more about what you've been doing in terms of like game development. Um, but just in general, just before we sort of move on to the games that you've chosen for the show, yeah. then, uh, how are you finding it? Um, basically being the other side, obviously having been a critic for so long, now having to be a part of the team that gets criticized, um, how are you finding it in terms of like your writing and designing? What is the sort of, is your brain like just changed now or is there still stuff there that sort of carries over from, you know, reviewing it, games to develop? Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, obviously it's, it's different tasks. So it's, it's quite different. You know, I'm writing for Original Sin too, but it's a different kind of writing. So there, you know, aside from the fact that, you know, I can spin a phrase and know language and grammar and whatever there's not a, there's not a whole lot of relationship between writing a review and writing dialogue for example in a game they're just they're yeah. different things um outside of that you know it's funny i thought or i i, I had you know i'd been told that maybe this would happen that when i started in development that now that once you're on the other side you might you, you'd feel bad when you're criticized or or so on and so forth but that hasn't actually happened at all. And I think part of that is that people don't understand that game developers usually, not always, but I think most designers, most studios, uh, most creators more or less understand what it is that they're giving you before you have it in the sense that they're already their own worst critics. They already know what the weaknesses and strengths are. They already know how to poke holes in what they've done. They've already spent hundreds of hours in meetings complaining to each other about the way they've done things. They've (laughs) already, you know, they've already put all of their colleagues through the ringer. They've already, you know, talked stuff through. You have to make decisions in game design, right? And so eventually you, you just have to get to the point where a decision has to be made and you have to work with that. And so nothing's really changed in a lot of respects because, Developers know what they have. So as a critic, 
you know, I don't really see it differently. We, you know, I already know what they're going to say <laughs> before it happens. <laughs> and, and it's funny because it's like, I mean, even, you know, when I was working on Davillion, you know, I could say to the team, this is the Metacritic that you can expect when I was on, you know, Atlas Reactor. I was like, I think this is the Metacritic you can expect um, and so on and so forth. You know, you, 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 you know, when you're making something, when you get towards the end, because a lot of stuff in games development, stuff doesn't even gel till, till literally months or weeks before it's even coming out where you don't even know how good the final thing is going to be. So much happens towards the end. People don't even realize. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, nothing's really changed. I'm actually really grateful for, for criticism for the most part. The thing, the only thing that ever bothers me is if somebody just gets something plain wrong, like, uh, you know, every, in, when the original sin two previews came out every so often you see something where they've just miscommunicated something that they were told, but those are, those are the little things, you know, we're, you know, at, at Larry and we're critiquing our the things we make all the time, and we certainly have lots of opinions on all the games everybody else is making. So, so <laughs> nothing really changes. You know, I don't feel bad at all when somebody criticizes it. It's actually funny because one of the first Davillion reviews to come out um, was from Rock Paper Shotgun, and John Walker. I love John Walker. He's a really interesting dude. And we've actually had dinner together before during GDC when he was in San Francisco and yeah. and stuff like that. And he wrote a scathing Davillion review specifically <laughs> calling out the writing as, as crap. Um, so it's one of those things where you, you know, you just kind of got to take it in stride, but you also, there's a difference between reading. Typically there's a difference between reading a critique, um, you know, from a major publication versus, like an internet commenter, you know, a lot of internet commenters have interesting things and important things to tell you. And many of them do not. Um, and you sort of have to rifle through what's, what's interesting to you. But a lot of that stuff that just comes randomly from the internet can feel very harsh, um, critiques when they're well-reasoned and so on and so forth. That's, it's just part of the job. You know, you just, yeah, you, you take it and, and, uh, you learn from it. A lot of it's like, yep, I agree with you. you I, I mean, you would be very surprised maybe at how many developers read the review and you're like, and they're like, yep, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I got, I got very lucky. I've only worked on three games and, uh, they were all on the better side of a Metacritic rating. So I've not quite had to deal with, maybe the disappointment apart from internet comments but that tends to just be funny because as you said they can be harsh but it's like they have no language other than fuck this or yes this is the <laughs> best thing ever um so it only ever sits between both those things there's no ever middle ground reasoning as to why this game may be mediocre or is not as good as people think um yeah internet commenters are just a whole different <laughs> beast at the end of the day um yeah. So we're going to move on to talk about the games that you've actually chosen to take with you because as yeah. good as uh, your life is now in Belgium, I'm sorry, but you can't be there for much longer because I have to ship you off to a virtual deserted island to play these games. I'm very sorry about that. 
Oh, that sounds terrible to be sent to a place where there are no rude people around where I can play video games to my heart's content. What were you thinking? <laughs> Damn it! I've not thought this through properly. Um, right? So we're gonna we're gonna jump in now to the the sure. first game you've chosen, and it's a pretty huge game. <laughs> some That's people true, yeah. call it some people call it one of the best games of all time, and it constantly tops that list. Um, yeah. Uh, former GameSpot now Danny O'Dwyer also chose this game for his eight games as well. <laughs> um, so let's listen to some music from this next game and let's start talking about Kevin's final games. Okay, so kicking off Kevin's list today, um, this game doesn't really need an introduction. Developed by Valve um, for the PC uh, and just has come out in what so many different platforms now thanks to the orange box and stuff like that. So it's on the Xbox, the Xbox 360, PlayStation 3, all that sort of thing. Originally came out for PC in 2004. It's just the huge game that needs no introduction, Half-Life 2. Yeah. Kevin, why is the first game that's going with you? Half-Life 2. So, I mean, I want to preface this by saying that I don't I don't consider these eight games that I chose my top eight games ever. Um, yes. That seems to be, that seems to be a thing, right? Yeah, that seems to be a thing with the show now. That is, It definitely is more a, a combination of games that you like, but games that may be practical for an island or games that are going to last a long time. It's definitely evolved right. now more beyond... And it's, it was always meant to be like that. It was always meant to not be, oh, these are my eight favorite games of all time. Because right. that doesn't work in the setting. Otherwise, this would just be a top <laughs> eight show. Um, right. But yeah, it's nice to hear people branching out of like, oh, I've really liked Ocarina of Time. But, you know, why would I take Ocarina of Time? Right. For, uh, right. And it, I don't really preface this for Half-Life 2 because Half-Life 2 is definitely one of my top 10 games of all time. So um, you've but broken more the for rules what's coming later. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but I just want, I pro, I'm saying that because there's going to be stuff later that probably wouldn't even necessarily be in my top 20 of all time, but are still oh, for some okay. reason in my top eight for, for the Desert Island. But hopefully I'll make good arguments for them. But Half-Life 2, it's it's not hard to formulate an argument, which which is to say that it is the best first person shooter ever made and beyond that it has so many different memorable moments that it gives you these these moments that you sort of want to re-experience um because not only are they important within the setting of the game but they're sort of important in within the entire genre um for a lot of different reasons i love half-life 2 in part because most shooters, I would say, are about making you feel powerful and giving, getting you to have a power trip 
and you know you get the guns and you get to shoot up stuff and make blood spew and you know it's that's that's what most shooters i would even say do when it comes to the the emotions and the the impact they want to have on you half-life 2 is different and interesting to me because half-life 2 puts you on the run you're not the aggressor in half-life 2 you are um you're on the defensive um until you know until the narrative begins to shift but even when the narrative shifts you're still on the defensive more or less you are in half-life 2 a man who has not asked for the role of savior you are a man who has inadvertently stumbled into the role of savior um and that is one of the things I think that makes Half-Life 2 very special. And then the way it takes this feeling of being on the run and pushing you through all these different places um, and letting you experience different types of gameplay through them that all make perfect sense. Like, to give you an example, a lot of people would even call out um, the bit where you're in the, you know, you're, you're in the, you're, you're piling the watercraft through the canals. And a lot of people like sort of look down upon that bit. And I actually think it's one of the great sequences in all of all shooters. Uh, And the reason is partially because of the, the way it looks as you move through, there's so much personality. If you start looking around, you, you start to notice like the, you know, where you are, you're somewhere in Eastern Europe. You don't know exactly where, but you can easily tell from the architecture um, yeah. you're in Eastern Europe. And sort of drab Soviet-looking yeah. areas. And yeah, you you begin to see, and and I wrote a, a whole thing, or it was supposed to be a start of a series, and unfortunately, I left Gamespot before I could ever complete it. But um, you know, you if you really know some of sort of that Soviet history you begin to start piecing things together about what you see as you go through the canals and then what comes later. So, and you, you start to sort of understand some of the Chernobyl influence. A lot of people will look at something like stalker, which is based around Chernobyl. Um, yeah. That's, that is what it does. But half-life two is a lot more subtle about the way it's calling to Chernobyl uh, and the way it's, calling to soviet history in general um not just through the propaganda posters that you see on walls but in the architecture as you go through the canals and and of sort of the of you know the otherworldly nature of the combine and 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 things like that and and there's just something very special about it and it helps that it's long half-life 2 is a relatively long shooter um at least it is now you know in particular given you know, that we're much more used to shooter campaigns that might last six hours or so. Now, you know, Half-Life 2 comes across as relatively long, but it's also varied. It's fun. It gives you lots of interesting weapons to shoot. It's got the gravity gun. Uh, Can't leave that out. Um, And beyond that, I think it's just special. It's got a very specific sense of place. It has a very specific history. And again, it has those memorable moments. It has... Even at the beginning, it has the moment of picking up a stupid soda can and deciding whether to throw it in the trash or <laughs> try showing it at, try, sh- you know, throwing it at somebody and see what the guard does. That's, that doesn't go well for you necessarily. Um, you know, it's, it's got the moment where you appear in Dr. Breen's office, you know, when the, you know, when, when you're first trying to, uh, 
get yourself out of the out of the facility in the first place. Yeah. Um, but then you've got the action moments that really stick with you. You've got the Strider battle um, when you know when people take arms and, and you're leading the cause. Still, all of it happening because these people believe in you, and you don't necessarily have any idea why. Like it's it's an interesting chosen one story when the chosen one never speaks. And I think it, but I think that's really important because what's important about a chosen one isn't what they do or what they say. It's what whoever is around them imbues them with, um, you know, like that kind of messianic figure is powerful, not in and of themselves, but they're powerful because of, because of the ideas that we uh, heap onto them, if that makes any sense. And so I think Gordon Freeman's one of the most interesting characters in all games and he never speaks a word, but I think that has to do with how well valve just takes these themes and layers them on top. Yeah. Of so Mr. Freeman. So you've um, seen that obviously Gordon is, you know, one of the best characters. Um, what, what sort of sets him out then apart from other, you know, silent protagonists, we have, you know, Lincoln, Zelda, uh, many, right. many other, but what sort of sets Gordon apart then? Um, because obviously the world built around him is so special, but right. the character is still huge interacting with the world. Is it just the things you can do as Gordon that builds him up as a character in your own mind? Mostly, yes. Um, I, I think it's the way... You know, to give you an example, I think a lot of the ways that we see ourselves has a lot to do with the way other people react to us. And yeah. I think that's just as true when you're playing a game. I think that a lot of what you put into the character that you're playing um, doesn't necessarily even have to do with what your character is doing and saying, but what is being said and done to you. And and this is sort of the epitome of that, right? You have a you have a, a character that never speaks. Um, I mean, for God's sake, you have a character that you can't even see his hands on the handlebars of the stupid of the stupid <laughs> cana- you know the the stupid boat. So it's. It's one of those things that I think fits so well within the the idea that Valve is going for, which is that, you know, you've been given all of this moral and thematic power over an entire group of people who look to you for leadership, and yet you don't have to say a single word. You know, you're, you, you've still been given this sort of uh, mysticism. And I think that's what makes Gordon interesting is that he carries this mysticism on his shoulders because it's been placed there by others. And that's what I think makes him interesting. I mean, if you, if you sat down with Gordon Freeman, God knows what he would say. Nobody's ever had a conversation. (laughs) If anything. Right. But I'm sure he'd have a lot to say, you know, but in the end, I don't want him to say anything now because nothing that he would say would make him more interesting at this stage, it sort of reminds me of have you, have you ever like been totally into a celebrity or thought that this celebrity would be cool, and then you see them on a talk show or on TV or something, and they open their mouth and they start to say things, 
and yeah. suddenly your little celebrity crush has gone out the window <laughs> because somebody that you thought would be really interesting turns out to be as bland as anything. Well, like what a- I was actually thinking was when you were talking about Gordon, I was imagining sitting down to have a cup of tea with him and him just opening his mouth and all of a sudden like this really high-pitched squeaky voice coming out for some reason and it just I, completely I can- ruining everything. <laughs> I just imagine like, hey, how are you today? And, Hello, you know, I'm Gordon. Hey, I'm, yeah, and and this comes from some, you know, this comes from a gay dude with a high voice. So you know, I'm just saying that's not what I want from my Gordon. But I don't know what I want from my Gordon, and I think that's part of the problem. But I I do sort of think of that sometimes. I saw Gwen. I hate to say this, Gwen Stefani. If in the off chance you're listening to this, I'm really sorry for what I'm about to say. But she's always been sort of my my straight crush. Like for a okay. long time, anyway, I kind of had a crush on Gwen Stefani. Very and understandable. I, Very understandable. Yeah. But I saw her on Chelsea Handler's show, her new Netflix show, not too long ago, and Gwen Stefani came out. I was like, "Oh, this is really interesting," because I never really saw Gwen Stefani talk, you know, just as a person, you know, I'd like as like, a normal person. Music. Yeah. So she sits down with Chelsea Handler and starts talking, and and just five minutes later, I'm like, "You're really boring." I can't believe I'm saying this, but can you just have Gwyneth Paltrow back or something? Because she was more interesting than Gwen Stefani. It's like, how is that even possible? Or like, I heard Lady Gaga and Howard Stern one time, and I was like, girl, you're boring. <laughs> I, I remember, so- actually, because one of my favorite bands of all time, and I might lose incredible credibility here, uh, is Audio Slave. I don't know why, right, but right. I've always really enjoyed Audio Slave from listening to Soundgarden back in the day and Rage Against the Machine. Combined, Audio Slave just sort of struck a chord with me. But Chris Cornell, for a very long time, lead singer of Audio Slave, became like my artist hero, like his solo stuff and what he was doing with Audio Slave. And then I watched an interview with him, man. He was so boring. He was just that typical <laughs> artist, people asking questions and him just giving one word answers, like, yeah. Tour's going great. Yeah, it's yeah. cool. And uh, it's just like, oh, so, have you got nothing to say? <laughs> yeah. And so I think Gordon Freeman's that. So I think the I think we need to make sure that Gordon Freeman continues to not talk because what makes him interesting is, is all the ideas that we give him from our own heads based on what other characters say and do around him. And that's that's my feeling about why Gordon Freeman is such a great character in spite of him not saying a word, I guess. Um, because we're able to do that because the rest of the writing is so good and the world building is so good that you've created a situation where you can do that and it can be an effective manner of storytelling. But so that's basically Half-Life 2 for you. Um, you know, in, in the end, it's just because it has so many interesting moments that I want to relive. And uh, I think in and of itself, that's just a good enough reason to make that one of my top eight, aside from all the, the, the things that make that game incredible. I think it's so, the only shooter to... No, it's not actually. Well, no, it's not the only. Don't... <laughs> the other is a... Yeah. Well, we'll see, you'll see when we get there. Yeah. But yeah. So Half-Life yeah. 2 is my is the only sort of standard shooter that, that came with First me First person story shooter. Like, yeah. not a competitive online shooter. Right. Story-driven right. first person shooter. Um, so just before we move on from Half-Life 2, I think I have to ask you the same question that I asked Danny as well. Sure. Um, Speaking of Gordon and his yeah. future, yeah, um, and we probably won't see him talk because there probably won't be a Half-Life 3. Um, 
what do you sort of feel about Half-Life 3? And and obviously you were a games journalist through the period of it being <laughs> one huge joke and constantly this incredible every E3, every Gamescom, is Half-Life 3 going to be announced? Do you still have hope? <laughs> do you still feel like it's coming? Uh, and what do you sort of ex- expect Valve can even do to make that game anywhere near? <laughs> it's never, ever going to reach... It's never ever going to be as good as the hype around that game now, unless it's like bringing peace upon the earth. It's just <laughs> not going to not going to be able to do it. But what what are you expecting, or what can Valve do, if ever, to sort of just match that hype? So I I don't know if I even, I have an answer to that question. Ultimately. Um... I do think, I mean, there are lots of pieces. I mean, Half-Life 3 exists on pieces on so many computers at Valve. It, it's not even funny. You, I mean, it's, I mean, I don't know that for sure. I've never been to Valve's office. I don't have any friends the, working there at Valve. There is definitely, there, but, if, if, if you know about game development, and like, there is definitely <laughs> elements of something that is called Half-Life 3. Right, it's it's everywhere, in, and every so yeah. often you see it show up in like a config file or something that they use, and then everybody in the Steam forums goes ape shit um, <laughs> over stuff like that, and that that doesn't surprise me at all. There's so many legacy files that hang around in game development that end up being in directories that you know, and you're, <sighs> you're using like Perforce or some other kind of like uh, fucking Perforce, you know, kind of, yeah. you know, system like that where you're where you're sharing files across networks with all of your coworkers, and eventually shit shows up on them and then people in, in the steam forums think that it's you know the meaning of life is soon to be introduced <laughs> um but uh it's i think that valve could make an incredibly good shooter um with you know whether they use all those remnants of half-life 3 or whether they don't um the question is do they want to and that's that's the more the more interesting question for me is because if they don't want to then they shouldn't um, I actually have a secret hope and I don't know how many people would agree with me, but I would rather just let Valve give Half-Life 3 to another developer in the same way that, you know, they were giving episode three to another developer back when there, we thought there was going to be a Half-Life 2 episode three. Remember that? Um, yeah. and that, that was going to be our, that was Arcane working on, you know, episode three. And then that ended up, uh, Arcane ended up making Dishonored and, as we all know, Dishonored is a fantastic game. So yeah, that's you know, certainly, right. you know, giving giving Half Life Two or Half Life Three, I should say, to Arcane, for example, would be a, a fantastic step. But honestly, my dream developer for Half Life Three um, would be the guys that made uh, Metro Twenty Thirty Three. So and and uh, and its sequel. So. You know, I would really love to see the t- the, the last light developers, the Metro twenty thirty three developers, um, which is four A games. Yeah, um, I would really love to see them take that on because I think Metro Last Light in particular is one of those games that actually follows in the Half Life two tradition, and when very few shooters actually do, um, in part because they're hard to make. Um, it's very hard to make a game like Half-Life 2. And, <laughs> you know, it's funny because when you look at recent years, there aren't a whole lot of them, but um, I can't believe I'm saying this, but structurally, Duke Nukem Forever falls in the, 
you know, falls in that category of games that are sort of structured like Half-Life 2 and um, certainly Metro 2033 and Metro. Yeah, Metro is pretty much Metro is pretty much the only one I can think of. I I think everything else FPS wise obviously falls along the line of trying to be like Call of Duty, which, you know, was a thing for a very long time in the previous generation. Um, But Metro is exactly the the sort of modern version of Half-Life I can see. Right. It really Very different is. games, but I, I can see what you mean by that. To some extent, Crisis as well um, went down that road. Um, they, they sort of try to split the difference. Um, but, but ultimately... Crisis Christ- was more, more... I feel like Crisis was more like a prototype, um, infamous kind of game where you have these sure. powers, but just in a first-person perspective. Sure. Um, yeah, but it, in terms of the structure, you know, a lot of that ends up being the same. Maybe not in the first in the first levels that people always remember when they talk about crisis, but more so something like crisis two follows in that vein, but those games are more open um, than typically. I mean, half-life two is, is ultimately just becomes a linear game with levels, but those levels have a lot of, have a lot of room to explore and they have a lot of vertical, you know, they have verticality a lot of the time and they have, you know, they're allowed to breathe, something that I love about Half-Life 2 uh, and something that you can also do in 2033 and, and Metro Last Light. So, yeah, I say give, you know, let, if Valve wants to continue just making, you know, making hats and doing the Dota <laughs> thing and making Portal 3 and things like that, then all the more power to them. Um, but I think that the best way to make Half-Life 3 relevant, um, besides the obvious relevance of it actually just becoming a thing um the best way (laughs) to make it as good of a game as we would want versus the kind of game we've built in our head is just to let another developer do it okay and 4a would be my choice well only time will tell and then yeah the more years pass by the more it seems like well i don't know in this day and age everything stuff is popping up all the time um (laughs) <laughs> we just like last year seen Shenmue 3 and just stuff is popping up all the time recently so who knows but obviously only time can tell yeah you never know never know so I think it's about time we move on to the next game um, so why don't we listen to some music from this next game and dive straight into it yeah <laughs> Okay, so Kevin, just before we start talking about your next game, we have mm-hmm. to talk a little bit about where you're actually stranded. Okay? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Okay, so th- for the purpose of the show, 
you are stranded. You are being sent off to a virtual deserted place. But obviously, we're giving you eight games to take with you, so it's not like you're going to survive. You're not <laughs> fighting for your life or anything. Um, right. So we kind of want you to be comfortable. Uh, I say we all the time. People criticize you for that. It's obviously just me. <laughs> I'm sending you. Um, so we allow you to decide where you're going, but it has to be a place from video games. It has to be oh, a video game world. So, I but the, the won't. There won't be any NPC characters who potentially could help you, because um, obviously game AI is getting a lot better these days. So, um, but if you choose a place that has like monsters, for example, um, for example, if you chose like a place from Zelda, if it had like goblins and stuff like that, Octoroks, they would be there because they can't help you; they're deadly. So you have to think about a place that would be potentially be safe. Uh, but from video games where you could sort of huh. be stranded and play these games. Is there anything that sort of instantly comes to your mind or sort of lingers as a good place? Well, if I could get rid of the monsters, um, then then I would certainly take uh, the... Uh, oh, gosh, and suddenly I, I can't remember the, the name of that area all of a sudden it's it's the place that you go in in dark souls after you leave the initial area the the, the place where you actually get to take a breather and the npcs all get uh, file link um, shrine filing shrine thank you i can't believe i couldn't remember that is is somebody who loves dark souls forever and ever <laughs> um see i, I think you're I... okay there because technically that area is safe it's safe yeah but it's, it's safe. only safe for a maximum of 50 meters in any direction. Right. Which is and a so pretty I, cramped space. Yeah, I'd rather be able to move around a bit. So I would probably actually take um, the desert from Journey, uh, maybe, as the place. I, I didn't know that this was going to be one of the questions, but I would say let's take Journey. <laughs> give, me the, give me the desert, which is already created to be lonely um, within its game form, and, and give that to me and let that be the space. Okay, is, is what I would say. Yeah. So you are being shipped off then to the desert from Journey, which is not appeared before, not a place that's appeared before. Um, very interesting. Uh, and the next game that you're going to be playing, a juxtaposition from Half Life, <laughs> a big juxtaposition yeah. actually, um, developed by Maxis, the unfortunately now defunct Maxis, um, and published by EA, uh, released for the PC in 2009. It's the life simulation game, The Sims Three. Yeah. yeah, why are you taking The Sims Three with you? To okay, so I the love, desert. <laughs> <laughs> I love the series, right? And so I played. I would play the original Sims till two, three, four in the morning, and not realize what time it was. And and it's 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 very involving, right? Um, and and most people know that you get like a combination of sort of virtual dollhouse combined with sort of managing the needs, uh, the the everyday sort of social biological etc needs of little people yeah. um but within that space you you get to really craft these interesting social interactions and you get to you know to to a lot of people think of it as like it's terribly mundane right a lot of people look at the sim series it's like why would i want to do that i already live life why would i want to then lead virtual ones but i think anybody that's played the sims really knows the answer to that question which is nothing mundane at all about these people's lives you know we get to you know kind of live vicariously a life we don't get to have right now but it's within that realm of possibility it's not and, like a far fetched 
a like distant future or like a video game right. in which you lose yourself, which is impossible to ever obtain. It is like bridging the realms of unbelievable sometimes, but still based oh, entirely sure. in reality. Sure. I mean, there are still aliens and you can still talk, you know, you talk to ghosts or become a vampire and stuff like that, depending on whether you have all the, you know, all the add-ons and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But there's also that element of the dollhouse that I think is really important in the, in the sense that you also get to play, for example, interior designer. Um, You, you get to make places that you wish you could call home, but you can't. And so you make it for your Sims instead. And, And I mean, that's just... That's just play. That's play at its most basic. That's why children like dollhouses. Because, I mean, it's just the very, it's one of those basic, like, instincts I think we just have from a very young age is let's play. Um, because we can't have this thing in, in the life that we have. So let's pretend that we can, you know, people have paper dolls and dress them up. And, you know, I can't wear Gucci, but I can make my Barbie wear something that looks like Gucci and, and <laughs> so on true. and so forth. And, and so I think that's part of it. Um, you also get to play genetic engineer. Um, you get to, you know, you get to uh, let your Sims have children and then, you know, you see what they look like. And eventually you create entire lineages of people and, and they're, they're different people. And I think that's another one of the joys of playing the Sims is sort of the, the balance between, them doing what you want them to do and the the autonomy that they exhibit at the same time yeah. like you do have you know some control over what it is that they do but eventually you put them in the right circumstance with the right personalities and suddenly you've got fights happening or you you know you let them go sometimes to just see what they do um and then they'll go off and either make friends or make enemies. They'll decide what's interesting. Are they going to listen to music? Are they going to pee on their own? Who knows? Are they going to, you know, are they going to, you know, go to bed at the right time? Are they going to remember to go to work? You know, uh, stuff like that. Like there's this really interesting, you know, balance between them doing what they want to do and them doing what you tell them to do. Yeah. And I think that's really fascinating. And the Sims three, I think, I think most people would look at The Sims 2 actually as the pinnacle of the series, but I choose The Sims 3 because I think it does a better job of creating a sense of neighborhood and a sense of being in a place where people travel to each other to visit. Um, There used to be a game, and it never came out, so I can't say there used to be a game, but originally there was going to be a game called Simsville that was going to come out that was... And it was ultimately canceled, but it was a Sims spinoff. And in my mind, that's sort of what The Sims 3 ended up becoming. It didn't become so much about you and a few neighbors. It became about, you know, a village, as it were, that you could move freely through. And you you finally got to, you know, you got to have your own little personal adventures, even when that just meant going to work and becoming a, you know, a famous, you know, opera singer or... <laughs> You know, doing whatever it is that you wanted to do. And then once the, you know, once the expansion started coming, you know, you could be a world traveler and you could, you know, go to this cool place and and go with your family and, you know, put on your bathing suit and romp around and and things like that. And and it just becomes really involving. It's, It's sort of like you take a microscope and you get to play God over at your neighbor's house. 
and you kind of, not a microscope, like a, a, a magnifying glass, and you just get to hover it over their house and see what they're, what it is that they're doing. And there's something very, uh, you know, vicarious about that. You know, there's something, you know, very voyeuristic about that. Um, and, and, and it just, it gets me. It, it's, it's just involving and I think much better than people give it credit for. Um, you know, it's, it's the ultimate people, you know, talk about casual games or, or the games that invite lots of people to come play games that hadn't before. Yeah. And the Sims is one of the most important games in the, in the history of the genre or the medium, I should say that, that did that. And, um, uh, it certainly did it for me. Uh, it's funny because I never particularly got into the Sims. I, I was one of those who sort of played it now and again, um, sort of maybe got a little bored, killed everyone in the swimming pool and just sort of moved on to the next thing. Um, but every time I've spoken to someone on the show, because uh, uh, Sims 3 specifically has come up a few times now, um, mm. whenever I've spoken to someone and even friends in uh, at work and stuff like that, everyone has a sort of weird Sim story. So I don't know if you do as well. Like one that sticks out, like a save game once where it was late at night and you just did something and then you went down the rabbit hole and followed it a little bit. Do you have like a weird sim story? Yeah, I mean, oh gosh, I don't remember. I'm trying to think of a good, a really good sim story, but a lot of it comes down to more of the the more of the freewheeling nature of things. I, some of my favorite memories of the Sims three in particular are getting on a bike. Cause you could get on a bike and, and just go off somewhere. And I would get off, go on a bike um, and go visit like the neighbors and see what they were up to. And then they would just do the craziest things. Like, you know, some of those are the usual Sims, crazy things. Like they put their plates on the floor and, <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, and the Sims three, you know, I liked a lot because eventually, you know, you could put like a, a water slide in the backyard and you could just have a lot of fun with that. I do remember though. So I do remember, I, if I remember this properly, I had a, I was trying to have a birthday party for, so, so your Sims have birthdays, but not whenever they, you know, it's not yearly. It's, you know, when they become a teenager, um, when they become an adult and then when they become old, I think if I remember correctly, but I remember having a birthday party for a Sim who was getting up there in years and I was holding the party cause you could, you could have a party and you could call up all the, all the, all the Sims friends and they would come over. And at some point I set the house on fire <laughs> And, you know, everybody's freaking out. And my old Sim, who I was looking forward to seeing die a natural death, died and is just incinerated. Um, and then death comes around. And it's like, oh, you want to, you know, you, 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 and you could sort of make a deal with death, if I recall correctly. And so you can sort like, you can sort of like, and I don't remember if this was something in the expansion or not, but you could kind of keep them around as a ghost <laughs> for, for a while. And just then sort of sort floating of... about around that. Could the other Sims see it or is it just you as the... It's been so long. I just remember freaking out that I thought it was going to be such a good day. And then the house was on <laughs> fire and my Sim was dead. And then the... Oh, you know, it had something to do with the urn. 
because you 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 got the ashes and you put them in an urn and then you and then you put the urn somewhere in the house and i think you would interact with the urn um and oh gosh i wish i could remember the exact nature of it all but it was just like this is insane um the whole game is insane i mean some people like playing it because they just create um just rooms without any doors and put sims in there and watch them pee themselves constantly until they just die of starvation so and that's not my idea of a good time in the sims but i get it because it's one of those things where you sort of get to play in ways that you can in real life and and in fact there's a an idea about real life about how dreams work in in our real lives which is that a lot of what dreams do is that they allow us to you know, our subconscious gets to play out different scenarios so that we can see how things play out, making decisions that we would not actually make in real life. Okay. And it, it, it feels very much the same way. It's it's like, okay, these are not decisions I would make in life, but what would happen if I did? How would that go? And you sort of get to see that play out. And I think that's a really interesting aspect of that game. And of course, it's just, it's it's endless. You know, you can play The Sims forever um and because well that's also a good point for a deserted island as well Um, right for one pseudo being falling into the crazy category of being alone um you can have these sort of human beings to kind of interact with uh which might stave off going crazy for a little longer than normal um and also for the fact that it is a game that you can just if if all shit goes wrong, you can just make a new save, make a new family, and ruin their lives all over again. <laughs> Sounds right to me. <laughs> so, I think we should move on to the next game now. Because I... the next game is another shooter. And this game is, I think now, I think this is its fifth week appearing on the show <laughs> in a row. This game wow. has just taken pretty much everyone in the games industry <laughs> by storm and i imagine people who are listening to this who are playing it obviously know why um but if you have listened to previous episodes and still wonder why we're going to listen to some music now and then kevin is going to tell us all about his next game So moving into your next game, Kevin, and as I said, this is a game that's appeared quite a few times now, and it just seems to have, it's the biggest hit of this year, I think. There isn't too much that really can compare to how just crazy this game is and how many players it has. Uh, I think it's like over 10 million already for a game that only came out in May of this year, which is huge. Made by Blizzard Entertainment and directed by Jeffrey Kaplan and Chris Metzen and all those wonderful people at Blizzard. Um, It's the team-based multiplayer, first-person shooter, Overwatch. Kevin, 
Please tell me why Overwatch is going with you. If you know, if you would have told me a year ago that I would be saying these nice things about Overwatch, I would have said that you were crazy because the game didn't look at all interesting to me. It just looked like Team Fortress Two with a bunch of different types of character, like many more types of characters, but uh, it, it just had that uh, that Blizzard polish that people love. Um, but I didn't see anything interesting about it. And everything changes when you touch it, you know, everything changes when you play it for the first time and then you realize what everybody is loving and God, I just fucking love overwatch. And which isn't to say that I think it's the greatest multiplayer shooter ever made. Like I, I was thinking about this and I was like, I think I would really want a multiplayer shooter. Um, and you know, I thought about, I I thought about different games that I might've taken with me. I thought about, uh, battlefield two, um or about yeah more probably more battlefield three um i thought about uh unreal tournament 2004 um which you know and, and of course i'm presuming that they would have like active communities and so they wouldn't just be dead games so just assuming that i'd be able to play them as they're meant to be played aside from the stipulations you gave me about online games mm. well but yes i i think <laughs> for the purpose of being shipped off to a unreal (laughs) deserted place um but yeah obviously in the modern day those kind of games don't have that kind of community um so if you were banking on it i think overwatch is a smart smart choice (laughs) but it's it's more it's it's more than that obviously in the end it's a lot of it comes down to how many different ways like you can play in overwatch and that you know, it's it's easy to to look at a game that feels at first, if you just were to break it down, that feels limited. Okay, you've got all these characters, but you've got you know a finite number of nap maps. I should say not naps, a finite number of naps too, but a finite <laughs> number of maps that you play on. You know, you've got you don't have that many modes to take part in. You know, you've got uh, you know you've got the 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 brawl, the weekly brawl and stuff like that but it doesn't mix things up in terms of the way you play in terms of objectives for example um usually you're just either catching you know you're either unlocking and escorting the payload or you've got capture and hold um and these are basically the ways you play overwatch but within that there's just so many ways everything can go and a lot of that has to do with just the pure variety of characters but it it's beyond breadth it's also the fact that all of those characters are just so much fun to play. And I, I think that we all have one or two characters in Overwatch that maybe we don't like playing. But it doesn't strike me that everybody that the same characters show up on everybody's lists of their least favorites, if you know what I mean. And what I love about Overwatch is that and you know, I'm I barely even play as a few of the characters. Like a few I've just picked up a handful of times and that's it. Um but it, it, so it's so just, who who are those characters? Oh gosh. Well, most of them are offense characters because I don't feel like I don't feel like I'm as good at a few of them as I should be to be making the right kind of difference. Uh, when okay. I play offense, I usually go with soldier. Um I will go with uh I I I will go with uh it's I go with McCree. Um I might sometimes play Tracer if I'm feeling pretty confident about it um but i actually have a hard i actually don't quite have a good handle on reaper i think genji is actually the hardest player the hardest character to play well in the entire game i agree and i don't like playing reaper or genji it, 
something about those two for me i just can't get, get it in my head about either how to play really ham and offensive with reaper yeah or how to play smart with genji i just i can't do it i don't know it's like a mental block yeah they're they're rough for me and then Farah, i just don't have a lot of i don't have a lot of uh time with and so it's one of those things where because i'm i'm trying to i you know when now that the competitive season's here i'm playing mostly competitive and no, you don't want to do somebody that you don't know that well in competitive play, and so you, you sort of you sort of reinforce all the characters that you've been playing, but don't play a lot of the new ones when you're sticking with competitive because you're just going to bring the, the the team down. So somebody's like, "Hey, can somebody play Reaper?" And I'm like, "No, <laughs> not if you want to win. You don't want me playing Reaper." Um, but the thing I love about all of this is that when you finally do try a new one and play a few times and get a handle on it you're like this is my new favorite character and then i'll and then you go to another one and it's like oh i forgot this is my actual actually my favorite character yeah or then you go and it's like oh wait but i forgot that's my favorite character and so i think we all have our favorites and i have my favorites um so let's talk a little bit about your favorites then well zenyatta is probably my favorite in the entire game wow that's uh, really strange because zenyatta is probably if we are talking about lower popular like the least popular Zenyatta would probably be up there maybe I and I I told you I told you everybody has those like those those characters that you know some people you you don't necessarily like to play but it doesn't always feel like everybody shares that same list so yeah uh, just one of those things that I love about it but I love playing Zenyatta and I love playing Zenyatta for a lot of reasons one is because you're you better not play Zenyatta if you don't have another healer. I don't think that's really a good rule of thumb. Um, but it, presuming that you have Lucio in particular is, is nice to have when you're playing with Zenyatta, I think. I think they make a good healing pair. But Zenyatta is great because, first of all, the Discord Orb, the effect it can have is devastating. But nobody knows that because it doesn't do anything visual enough to make you realize that the whole thing hinged on the discord orb. Yeah. And so you throw out the discord orb and suddenly you can bring down tanks in like three seconds flat, sometimes on your own. And that's where Zenyatta really comes in handy. If you've got a pesky in particular, if you've got a pesky roadhog or a pesky diva, Zenyatta is your best friend right there. Um, because I'll throw on the discord orb onto either one of them and diva can go down really fast or i should say diva's mech because getting her down once she's out of the mech and moving around really fast is a little bit harder for zenyatta to do um but as long as you've got like a slow moving uh character um just throw the discord orb shoot them with your with your own you know circle of balls and <laughs> uh and and they're down and what's great about that, I think, is is that you can stay out of the way. You can make a big impact, and it's not necessarily unheard of if you play Zenyatta to like get gold and damage, even if you have straight up damage dealers on your team, because you can stay back. Um, a lot of times, like Zenyatta is pretty vulnerable to some some characters, like Farah. Uh, uh, is is pretty rough because she's up above and you can't really do anything about her. Um, well, you can shoot her when you're Zenyatta, but you know she she's she'll get it's you difficult. down quickly. 
yeah, yeah. And, but may is like seriously a big problem when you're zenyatta um so as long as she's not getting behind enemy lines and being a you know being a true problem um you you, you kind of get that offense bit where you kind of get to play like a medium to long range type of sniper in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, And you, you get the orbs, which can change everything. You stick the orb on, you know, on your most vulnerable tank and let that take care of that. Um, And then just move it around if you need to. And then, you know, you've, there's another thing that people don't talk about with Zenyatta that is how good, the interface is with allowing you to see where enemies are that you can't with other characters because whenever an enemy comes into your line of sight, you get that little box that shows you that you can throw the discord orb onto them. Yeah. And so what it does is it basically widens your field of view in terms of being able to see where the enemy is. And when you've got the discord orb on somebody, the, your, the interface follows that person around for you. If they're if they're out of um, line of sight for too long, the the orb will be returned to you. But when they, you know, as long as they're not gone for too long, you can see where they're going behind walls. You can see the movement of the character, and you can kind of move the way you shoot. You can kind of see where they're going, and then you can shoot accordingly, um, even if you can't actually see the character because stupid Reinhardt's in front of you or something. You know. Yeah, so that's why I love Zenyatta. Um, but I but I play a bunch of other characters that I really love. Um, Roadhog is probably my second favorite. I love Roadhog. Love Roadhog. He <laughs> is he is the best. I love him so much. <laughs> and Roadhog is great for a lot of reasons. One of which is that if you really want the gold medals, he's the best. In, to me, he's the best character pound for pound to get everything that you can do in that game done. You can easily walk away if you're a good Roadhog player. You can easily walk away with golden damage, golden objective kills, and golden eliminations, and typically silver in, in healing. And boom, you know, that's, that's Roadhog. He's so good at everything. Um, and if you can use that hook well... Um, he's your answer to really annoying characters. Um, in particular, like Tracer, um, Diva when she's out of her mech, uh, Genji when he's being a problem. And you can, when you're playing Roadhog, you can also really make quick work of a healer if you need to, like just yank Mercy or, uh, or Lucio right in front of you and just pick them off right away. And just individually, it's one of those feelings in Overwatch that's just one of the best feelings you can get in the game, which is pulling them in and killing them in one shot. I have I have such gun. an affinity for characters that have chain um, like hooks. Mm-hmm. Like I really enjoy playing competitive games like MOBAs that have hook skill shots. Just, yeah, there is, as you said, nothing more satisfying than hooking someone from quite a long distance and then just firing a shotgun in their face yep. Yep. and uh, just then walking your fat body away like in a nice peng- <laughs> penguin shuffle. Exactly. Just get around the corner, heal up, and then you're, you're good to go. And, and it's, just, it's just a good feeling because even though I think – I mean, Reinhardt's the tankiest of the tanks, but the fact mm. that as 
Roadhog, you can sort of just keep yourself alive for so long if you're careful about it. Um, you, you can be a really great asset to the team because you're you're doing damage, you're getting the eliminations when you need to, you're getting rid of the most annoying characters on the play field, um, which are the fastest moving characters, the ones that ruin everything. Um, you know, and you know, Tracer, Genji, the ones that you wish would die in a fire. Um, <laughs> and again, you're kind of vulnerable to May, but everybody's sort of vulnerable to May. Fuck May. Um, so <laughs> when when she's on the other team, I mean. So the, I, I do love Roadhog, but lately Lucio's been kind of fun for me um, because so there are a couple maps that are truly fun to play Lucio on, um, and they're capture and hold maps. So you've got Ilios which is um, the one that has the well in the middle. The Greek of the, level. The uh, capture point. Yeah. Yeah. If you're Lucio, you can really be annoying to the enemy by never letting them capture, that po- capture the point if you're careful because you can just leap down into the well and continue to skate around the sides of it. <laughs> and as long as you don't stay there for too long, you are really annoying the other team. And a lot of the time, they won't even know you're there. Because they're so busy. And the downside is that you're not doing any damage. Um, because you're, you're, you're just skating in there and doing your, your area healing. Um, you're not really, you know, firing your gun. But one thing you can do is you, as long as you stay fairly shallow, you go around a little bit and then just sort of automatically leap up out. And then if you're lucky to have like an enemy near you, just skate behind them and pop them right into the well and watch them die. <laughs> so that it's really fun to do that there and there's also the other capture and hold map um and i suddenly forgot the name of it it's it's the one that has that big vertical spot right like god i wish i could remember the name of the map but you you come in from opposite sides and you get in there and it's got little walls in the middle but it's also got the stairway up um, to the side and then another stairway that goes up from that and a great big door way up at the top. And sometimes an annoying junk rat or Pharaoh will get up there. Um, um whatever that uh, map is, I, it's not uh, I can't believe I don't remember the name of it. No, it's not Hanamora. No. Um, I'll, I'll look it up while we talk and then I'll sound really smart. Um, <laughs> but, um, if you people can do skip the same the past thing five on seconds. that. <laughs> <laughs> so you can, you can, you can, when you're Lucio on that map, you can do the same thing that you do in the well. You just got to go up the stairs and then up the stairs and come out at the very top. And then you can start skating around the entire damn room way up high and nobody will notice you. It's amazing. <laughs> it's Li Zhang Tower. I'm going to start doing all this. It's Li Zhang Tower. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So... I don't particularly like playing Lucio though, because everyone plays Lucio, and well, he's easy in a lot of ways because yeah. as long as you can stay out of trouble, you don't have to work to heal people. You just sort of move around, um, and you just ice skate around them, <laughs> right? But yeah. the thing is, pe- a lot of people don't realize how devastating Lucio can be on very specific maps, and on those maps you've got that bit where you can sort of take advantage of being in control. Um, and you're a really big help. Like in terms of keeping control of a point, Lucio is your best bet for a healer. Um, 
but he can also be great um, on any level where there's easy drop-offs. When, when you can uh, shoot somebody over the edge of a spot and have them fall to their death. Um, and so I think those, you know, doing that in, in any of the maps is always fun. Again, I like Ilios the most because you're already probably skating around inside that well. Yeah. <laughs> At least I'm already skating inside that well. <laughs> um, but there are the other ones, t- you know, the other ones too, where you have the, you know, you, you have an easy drop off. Like there's that one where you have the point, you know, you, you have to go and unlock the point to get to the second one. The first point has like drop offs on either side and you just like pop them right out of there with you, with your secondary fire. And that actually <laughs> builds up really fast. And so, you know, what I end up doing is like just skating around the walls so that they can't really like, they have a hard time targeting me. And then I just pay attention to who's standing in the doorway and I come down near the doorway and it's like, goodbye. <laughs> and that's Lucio. And all of this, and I and I get that we could talk forever about Overwatch, and we, I've only really talked about three characters that I really like, but in the end, this is what I love about Overwatch, is that within the confines of what seems like a structurally simple game come all these stories that I can tell you about, like whether you're, you know, it's not a hook and grab and shoot game, and it's not a skate around the walls game, and it's not a you know, throw orbs at people to make them weak game. It, it's all of those things. And if I want to play a skate around and heal people game, I get to do that in Overwatch. And if I want to play a game where I hook people and hit them with a shotgun, I get to do that in Overwatch. And if I, you know, if I'm in the mood to shoot rockets from above, I can do that in Overwatch. And this is what I love about Overwatch so much is that you get all that variety within this what seems like relatively simple confines and the fact that the game is so i hate the word polished but i'm going to say it because it applies i guess it is, the game is so polished and by that i mean the interface is is so communicative both visually and and you know from an audio perspective and you know i i've talked to people at work about overwatch about like the interface and it's just people don't realize it's one of the most brilliant interfaces ever mm. um how it's different for every is. character as well but yeah portrays to the player everything you need to know about that character even if you haven't played it played everything that you before. need to know and the audio is perfect i can't tell you how perfect the audio is it's really important for example that when you hear you know um you know you know yeah you know that yes you always you you hear it and you hear it when you need to hear it and then you hear like if we're going to talk about that one you you hear all of the sound effects that come after it you hear the sound of the the dragons moving and and stuff like that and it starts at the right time you see exactly what you need to see um and importantly you don't hear your own character's you know, your own teammates doing that. Cause that would be a damn mess. Yeah. Um, and so they play with, with audio and volume in particular, really, really well. So that what's happening is always really clear, but they never overdo it. There's never a mess of audio coming at you. Do you know what I mean? Like it's always yeah. exactly the right audio. It, and it's so perfectly balanced. You Overwatch, hear I just exactly what you need to. Yes, from the other team, while also hearing tidbits of your team 
maybe saying some lines so you know they're around you, which is right. incredibly important as well. And then visually, I mean, I'll just say this. I mean, it's got a lot of personality, right? It's amazing to me that you can take all these characters that look like they belong in, in, you know, 20 different games and make them all look like they belong in the same place. Yeah. But when you look beyond that, like sometimes, because a lot of games can get really visually cluttered really, really fast. And here's something that's important about why these characters all look distinct and why their attacks all look distinct from each other. Because it's never unclear what it is that's happening around you. And it, that way it makes it really easy for you to focus on what you need to do and where your teammates are and where the enemy is. And you never get in that situation where it's too much of a mess. Like you just can't quite get a handle on what's happening. And so you just pray for the best. And sometimes I'll get to that point at the end of the game. I'll be like, Somebody will get like play the match or somebody will get a card and I'll be like, oh, I didn't even know that we had a whatever character it is in, in, in the entire match. <laughs> but that's actually a good thing because what it means is that you're not getting distracted by what other people are doing. It means that it, the game is communicating only what you need to know to be good at what, what it is you need to be good at at that particular moment in time. And it's brilliant. And it's all that stuff. It's all that little stuff. Um, that can take a game that might be mediocre or might be good or whatever and turns it into something amazing. And that's what they've done. And I just want to play Overwatch every day till the day I die. <laughs> and you will be able to. And you will be able to. Because where you're going, that's the whole point. <laughs> Yay. So I think we should definitely move on from Overwatch because we still have five games to talk Sorry, about. Sorry, I'll try to be quicker. Today. But the next game, I'll be, I'll be very surprised if you aren't able to talk about this game for as long as you could overwatch as well. Uh, I could. I could. This is a game that's also appeared quite a few times on final games. Um, Let's just listen to some music. Mm Mm-hmm. game that we're going to talk about now kevin is a game that i have to admit uh this series um the original the first game um which i think was a little different uh to where obviously where that studio is now what they're doing um i watched my housemate play it in polish um not the not english uh, he played the polish version um cuz i don't know someone told him about him and i was i wonder what it was about but i have to give credit to to you mr kevin van Oord, for your witcher 2 review oh yeah for getting me into this series i i, I really loved put, the witcher 2 yeah, that game was good. i 
I purchased The Witcher 2 <laughs> on PC because of your review of the game. Oh, thank you. So I, I have to admit. Um, but obviously, we're not talking about The Witcher 2 today. We are talking about the next game in the series. Yeah. And yeah. CD Projekt Red's latest title, uh, they're just excellent. Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. Kevin, it's just so good. <laughs> it's just so good. It's just so good. And and I'm a, I'm a, I'm an RPG player, as you know. I mean, I'm, a, yes. I'm, I'm making an RPG. But I think it's really important to note that this is the only RPG to make it on my list. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's because for a long time, you you know, you had RPGs that did different things, but it was very hard to get an RPG that did all of the things and did all of them well. So you could okay. So let's say. You, you know, you wanted something like Skyrim. You can choose Skyrim, and that would be a very reasonable choice for the show. I bet you people have chosen Skyrim. They have indeed. But if you choose Skyrim, there are certain things that you have to give up, like good gameplay. <laughs> I'm being mean. I'm being mean. But what I mean is, when you, if you choose Skyrim, you're giving up. You're giving up good movement and good combat. And you're. I gi- don't think it's a stretch to say. You're giving up quite a bit. You're giving up a bit, but you're giving it up because there's something about that world. There's something about its charm. There's something about its space, about the freedom um, that, it, that it offers you. And so it would be a the, very the, reasonable the, choice. There's something very different about the two. I think I, I look very at Skyrim as more yes. of a game, as more of a game. Like it mm-hmm. has, especially with all the mods and everything that's going on with Skyrim these days, that is just a game. It's like a sandbox for you yeah. to play in. Whereas The Witcher 3 is an RPG. It's a sure, full story, combat, hours and hours of exploring and just... And that's what separates the two in my mind between yeah. the quality of the two. Not taking anything away from Skyrim. It's a different kind of quality. It's definitely... But, they're definitely different games. Definitely different ways to approach RPGs. And Yeah. But that's why I chose The Witcher 3 over something like Skyrim is I feel like, okay, so if I choose The Witcher 3, I'm also giving something up, right? I mean, that's how games work. You don't... There's no such thing as the everything game. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the things that I want from a, from an RPG... Um, the Witcher 3 gives me most of those things. And what's even more important is that it gives me all of those things and it does all of them at bare minimum reasonably well. And at maximum genre best. And so I, I never feel like if, if I'm going to choose an RPG and I'm looking for one that's going to do the things that it does, it's going to do them all well. This is the one I'm going to choose because I feel like I'm giving up less. Um, yes, I might be giving up some of that freedom and some of that sort of systemic freedom that you, you know, that you get from a Bethesda game. But yeah. what I'm getting is I'm getting much better combat. I'm getting a story that I'm interested in and characters that I'm interested in. I'm in a world, frankly, that I'm more interested in. Um, consequences that feel more meaningful. Um, I'm getting beauty. Not to say that Skyrim is not a pretty game, because it is a pretty game, but it's no Witcher 3. Um, <laughs> not many things are, so... Not many things are, right. <laughs> and, you know, and in the end, I get, you know, even beyond that, I get to get these special... And we, you know, go back to Half-Life 2, for example. Like, I talked about, like, those special moments that you sort of want yeah. to treasure and keep with you so that you can... Sort of like having your photo album. You want to open it, you want to sort of, like... 
you know, oh, I remember when that thing happened. You sort of want to relive that. That's the same kind yeah. of thing The Witcher 3 does for me is like, okay. when I think of the RPGs of, say, the last 10 years, and I think of the the quests that mattered to me, and I think of the things that I still have in my head, and I and I sort of turn them over in there, and I think about them. And The Witcher 3 has so many of those moments for me. It has, so there's a quest involving a character named the Bloody Baron, for example, and, and yep. a child, I guess I could say. Um, uh, sort of. A, I don't want to be spoilery, but it's yeah. also not really that either. Um, it, let's just say that it's 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 a lot of things all at once. It's disturbing. It's touching. It's bothersome. You're doing quests for a man that is abhorrent, but also a man who truly seems to be trying to do something new and different and right. And you can help steer him towards being that new, different, right person, or you can steer him away from that. And you can, you know, I, these are the, the moments that I think about. I think of that Bloody Baron quest a lot because it it hit me emotionally for so long. And lots of games can be emotional in certain ways, but the fact that it does it, that The Witcher 3 does it not just through, you know, dialogue and what you see, you know, like, just the words people say, but it also does it in the way people look and it does it in the actions that you take. Like the, in, and I don't want to be spoilery, but in that, in that quest, depending on how you go about it, you, you know, the bloody Baron has to hold a thing and you know, you, you have to do this thing where the bloody Baron has to sort of confront the nature of what it is that he's done. And it's done not just through words. It's not just done through visuals. It's done through gameplay and it's done through the actions that take place on screen. And, and that's a really special thing to do when gameplay and story come together to make for an unforgettable memory. That's, I mean, I don't even know what what else to say about that. I mean, it's just it's and that's just one quest that did that. There's another spot yeah. that I always come back to as well. Where well, even even the way the uh, every time I talk to someone about The Witcher Three, it, it always sort of comes back to the Bloody Baron quest because you have that first initial bit, but then as you progress a little bit more into the story, there is another bit that involves him and the character and his family, and it's like right. a, very, a long continuation and and. You spend like, I don't know, like six, seven hours doing these quests. That is a considerable amount of time. You know, that yeah. is a lot of games full playthroughs. So you were talking with these characters a lot. And the the different endings to how it ends with the Bloody Baron and his family, one of them is just just mind-blowing. Like Mind-blowing, right? Never or- expect... <sighs> But there's another like, one where it's like, there's another one where it's like, this is heartbreaking. Yeah. And it ends in a, and it ends in a way where there's no real, I don't want to say satisfying conclusion because that's not a, at all what I'm trying to say. Um, it there has, is definitely not a satisfying conclusion. <laughs> no, but what I, but what I mean is it's not afraid to, you know, so many stories and so many games just, they have to wrap it up. We, like when I talk about Half-Life 2 and how so many shooters are a power fantasy because that's what satisfies people the most. The Witcher 3 is not afraid to be like, yep, this is just kind of the way things go sometimes. 
And, and then you're just like, Oh God, why does the world suck? And, <laughs> but that's a great thing when it comes to the Witcher three. And I think more games should do that more game. So many games are so concerned with making us feel powerful and giving up, putting us in control and then giving us something that, that is, you know, ultra satisfying in terms of, you know, hey, we did it, we saved the world what, kind of thing. What and I've always it, found, just to hit on that point a little bit, what I find incredible about The Witcher is even with these amazingly dramatic, um, heartfelt, and just mind-blowing sequences, what The Witcher gets away with incredibly is that you as a main character, you as Geralt, are unaffected by this at all. It's all happening to characters outside of the, like, Geralt's <laughs> sort of space. So you have all these stories. It's so different from other video games where yeah. they always try and do stuff that affects the main character or affects the player's sort of gameplay or story. Whereas what happens to the Bloody Baron, you just watch and experience. You have some influence over what happens, but Geralt just gets on his horse and rides away and carries on his story. And I always find that even more powerful because it's life goes for, on. Yeah. Life goes on for you. Yeah. There is no consequence. It does not matter. <laughs> and that, I think that's even more incredible yeah. about how they get away with that. But, but it's also interesting to note that there are things that have consequence for Geralt, but Geralt is sort of a, I mean, he's no Gordon Freeman when it comes to like protagonists that don't have much to offer. But in terms of video game protagonists, he doesn't carry around a lot of personality or baggage with him. Um, it, so the thing I like about that is it doesn't like, depending on how you choose things that affect him personally, everything still ends up fitting one way or another. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, if he decides to be like, I'll fuck off all of you. It's like, yeah, I can see Geralt doing that. And if he's like, <laughs> yeah, I think I kind of just, I, I just think I kind of want to like get together with Triss and kind of just grow old or something. Like, you're like, also... oh yeah, I can see Geralt doing that. Um, they, he they, does they, fit. Yeah. Think... Like they do. It's a pretty, it's a pretty tough line to, you know, to handle because you want to have a character that has some personality. <laughs> it's weird but because you... they've kind of created a character that fits almost at anyone's play style, but anyone right. can sort of sit back and be like, oh yeah, I wouldn't have done that, but I can definitely see Geralt doing that. Yeah. They, they and, and it's like all games you have, you, you sort of have the boundaries on either side. Like you have a, a reasonable space whether it's gameplay or whether it's like, this is the reasonable space that you can stretch a system or stretch a story or stretch a character. And I feel like they do a really good, like CD Projekt Red does a really good job of stretching the character to the top end and the low end of like where those boundaries lie yeah. and then playing around there so that everything seems reasonable without quite going over the top. Um, and I don't know the rest of the Witcher three. It's just it's just amazing. Um, <laughs> again, because it, it it suits most of what I want from an RPG in that most reasonable way. Plus, it takes place in a world that's beautiful to look at. Um, Gorgeous characters I, are interesting. Yeah, the just... characters are interesting. I like I like the combat a lot. I like 
I like the combat because of the kind of freedom it offers in terms of things like a lot of other games. There are a lot of other games that give you lots more combat options in terms of, oh, look at the 27,000 spells that you can cast if you want to and things like that. But I think that based on what they're doing, it works out really well. You don't have quite that kind of thing that you can in Skyrim where it's like you can kind of be... You know, there's lots of different races and lots of different, you know, yeah. play styles and spell you styles Geralt and things and he like that. You want wields two swords and then sometimes dips into magic. Yeah. He doesn't go overboard and becomes this all-powerful sorcerer. He just sort of uses it as like a tool set. Like he's kind of got like a belt right. with all these different tools on it. And... He's sort of like bat, like fantasy Batman. He is medieval <laughs> Batman. <laughs> and but you know, I, I I'll give that like I'll give it to the game because like in the end, you know if you know you have to choose between like that Skyrim kind of like lots of choices, but it's always clunky versus like here's something that feels a lot more together. Um, yeah, at least in my opinion, I know a lot of people that really don't really like the style of combat, and I get it. Some people um, it hate the combat me. in The Witcher. Yeah. So but it really works for me. Um, and so yeah. like if I, you know, in the end it's like this game has most of what I want from an RPG and it's not even really about how long it is, although it's certainly long. Um, but it's also about like, sometimes you just want to spend time with the people and sometimes you want to be in the place and sometimes, and it's smelling the roses know, along the way kind of thing. Yeah. Just taking or in your this time. Case, like, kind of like smelling the poop along the way you know it's not like this is a <laughs> like a, a a world brimming with uh you know well not until the last uh add-on at least not until the last dlc but most of the time you know it's a beautiful world but it's also not necessarily a world that you want to live in like yeah. actually living in that society would be really sucky um <laughs> but that's another one of the things that makes it interesting is like in the end do i you know, in the end, do I want to live in some kind of fantasy heaven or do I want to be in a place that actually, you know, gives me both highs and lows because I can only appreciate how high the highs are when I've been to the lowest of lows. And that's something that I love too, is like sometimes this game really does take you to the lowest of places. Um, but then I get to appreciate, you know, I get to leave the battlefield um, and then I get to see the sunrise and then it's, yeah. the sunrise just means all that much more. <laughs> I, it's a beautiful game. And I I expect that for as long as this show goes on, it's going to keep appearing. And it's appeared a lot and for such good reason. Because even on top of that, with the DLC that comes out and just keeps holding that Witcher standard to its highest point. Some parts of like the DLC are just even better than the main game and... Yep. Just, in, just an incredible package. Um, so we're going to move on now to a very different type of game. Um, a beautiful looking game. But the extent of my play with this game is a Gamescom 2011 demo. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I never actually played the full version of this game. But I have played a demo of it. Um, but I'm very interested to see it on this list. Because from the demo I saw, I actually really enjoyed it. And it looked very beautiful. Um, so I'm very interested to hear what you say about it. So let's listen to some music from this next game. And let's dive straight into it.
So the next game on your list, Kevin, is a game developed by Related Designs and published by Ubisoft. It's uh, part of the Anno series, uh, super famous like city building economic simulator game. Um, it was released for PC in 2011. Um, yeah. It's Anno 2070. Yeah, who would have seen that coming, right? <laughs> so this was this was interesting for me. So we've now reached the point in my list where it's we've we've gone from the well obviously part of my list to what the yeah. fuck is this list? Yeah, we're um, definitely sort portion. of going into ooh, this is interesting. Yeah, I, and I thought a lot about this because I was like, I want a strategy game, um, and I want you know one of those replayable type strategy games. And originally there was a different game in this slot on this list. I had Civilization Four on the list. Okay. Um, and I thought of some other games, you know, like real-time strategy and things like that. And it, nothing was quite hitting the, if there's, all, you know, if there's a strategy game that I had to choose and play forever, what would it be? Um, I almost put Homeworld on the list, and then I didn't because I had, you know, I went in a different direction when I was thinking about space. So, you know, in the end, I chose Anno 2070 because it, it sort of gives you aspects um, from lots of different genres that tend to keep you at a computer for hours. So for, it's got the city building aspect. So I, you know, at one point, maybe uh, SimCity 4 could have been in this spot on the list. And, you know, it's it's got, you know, the combat aspect of it, you know. And in the end, I you know, that's why I chose it, because it, it's it sort of kind of straddles that line between like okay you've got the city builder part and you've got the strategy part and you've also got this these other cool things that make it seem a little bit more special like you've got you know quests that you take on and you've got uh sort of different factions um that you have to deal with and you've and one of the coolest things is you've got like underwater stuff that you get to do too so you get to like kind of get in your sub and go underwater and create like little, you know, not villages per se, but you get to go down there and you get to start harvesting, you know, things down under the sea and, and sort of plant structures down there. And it's beautiful to look at. And, and so you've got like this moment to moment gameplay that's really fun because you get to do the quests. You get to you get to do things like go underwater and do the submarine stuff. You get to do some real time combat between the ships that you create then you've got sort of the medium term things, which is like you're building your city, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to gather resources and, and make money in the way you do with a city builder and things like that. And then you've got sort of your long term goals, which is, you know, you're sort of, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, other factions and how they're going to relate to you. You're dealing yeah. with, uh, you know, so there, there's this sort of metagame over top of it. Um, you know, dealing with your arc, which is like this great ship that sort of de functions as your home base. Um, and so it feels like you've got sort of these uh, immediate concerns, the medium term concerns and the long term concerns. Um, and I think because this game gives you all three of those and on top of it ends up looking really pretty and sort of has this nice you know, sort of eco-friendly kind of theming to it. And you, you can choose whether to, you know, you have to make some decisions on whether, okay, I want this, but this means polluting the world, you know, or I, you know, I want a thing, um, but, you know, I, you know, sometimes you have to, you have to trade off in other words. Sometimes you have to trade one thing for another and, you know, you have to decide whether you want to be selfish about it um, or whether you want to try to be a little bit more, 
you know, friendly to the earth and, and, and things <laughs> like that. And, and so you've got, it's just a super interesting game. And there were so many things that could have gone here. Like I thought of things like might and magic or disciples or a lot of these kinds of, you know, strategy games and offshoots, you know, in the broadest sense of strategy. Not, games, co- not quite like city builders in there. And, and yeah. Like uh, strategy games that have a twist, uh, a sort of, especially in the terms of like might and magic, which is kind of like a mm-hmm. real time chess game. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. And disciples too almost ended up in that slot for the same reason, a sort of might and magic type game on the strategy role-playing side. And in the end, there was something, there's that something about Anno 2070 for me that sort of splits the difference in all these things where it keeps me invested right now. It keeps me invested for tomorrow and it keeps me invested for next week. And it's just really good at that. <laughs> and so I went with, I, I went with Anno 2070 as sort of that, like, I mean, I could have, I mean, I could have gone with total war. Right. And I, and there's nothing yeah. that kept me from putting it on the list somewhere else, something like that. But I had so like, I only had eight slots. <laughs> so I was like, if I really did have to bring a strategy game with me, which one would I choose? And in the end, I chose the one that gave me sort of aspects of SimCity that gave me sort of that near future sort of tingly Tom Clancy type vibe that I kind of like about a lot it's of very, soft games. It's very different it, like from other real-time strategy games in its right. feel. And I don't know, it gives me a sort of a clean feel like everything runs nicely and almost like that ubersoft feel with all their other games as well something is distinctively ubersoft about it uh yeah. i can't quite i can't quite think of what it is but there is definitely something like a lot of strategy games all sort of feel the same or they come under the same category like sort of umbrella uh, and you if you turn on one uh you as long as you've got the knowledge of how it works you'll sort of be able to play it as I know, right. especially previous games in the series, uh, and from what I played in the demo, uh, it does feel a bit different, and that's probably why it's not as popular as uh, I think other games. It's a little more, I think, difficult to pick up. It it is. Um, it also had the the mis you know the misfortune of kind of being one of the earlier sort of you play online only all the time type things that didn't necessarily seem like it needed it. And and that certainly had people up in arms. And of course, then you had sort of, you also had sort of a little pushback from, you know, maybe the the neoconservative slash alt-right kind of thing, which is like, how dare you put, you know, sort of this, you know, this eco message into your, into this game. It was one of the, you know, one of those early games in terms of like, keep your politics out of my games because it had the pollution element and, and it thought that it was trying to be all, you know, political, poli- you know, people, some people God, were like, oh, it's, it's being too politically a, correct. And that's a part kind of, of gameplay. God yeah. damn people. But that's, Jesus. That's a discussion for another day. I think yeah. Although if you follow me on Twitter. You probably know where I fall on, on that particular subject. <laughs> um, so in the end, I chose Anno 2070 um, because I just think that it gives you that that tingle that you want from a city builder and a strategy game, and it goes broad enough where you can get a lot of those feelings that you want from some real-time strategy, from some city buildings, from some quest doing, kind of in one place, and it does them well enough where you can sit down, decide what it was you, what it is that you want to do during that play session and then feel satisfied at the end of it. 
Excellent. Well, we're going to move on now to your next game, which is, uh, and uh, you've got a, a very all-round uh, list of different genres. So yeah, we're, we're yeah. going to move on to a point-and-click adventure now. We are. <laughs> I think probably would be the least suitable genre for a mm-hmm. deserted island, I think, mm-hmm. but this is a very popular point-and-click game yeah. of, of recent times, especially of the, that very powerful PC era late 90s um so let's listen to some music for this next game and let's have a conversation about it Kevin, the next game on your list is a point-and-click adventure game developed by the Norwegian studio Funcom. Uh, It released for the PC back in 1999, uh, and it recently had an iOS version, uh, I believe. I think because I nearly bought it at one point. Yeah, Uh, a couple years ago, there was was a mobile version. It it, it didn't come to the US um, until 2000, so I think of it as a a 2000 game, I guess. Okay, okay. but it does. It doesn't matter whether because 1999 <laughs> was a fan. It, put it 99 for all I care. That was a fantastic year for games. That's when Homeworld came out. So I'm good. Yeah. Um. But uh, you know, I, I, let me ask you this. So let's pretend that this podcast were about books instead of games. Would you know when you're going to choose that book? You know, there are lots of different reasons you're going to want to reread a book that you take with you, right? Because you're going to yeah. be like, okay, you're not going to take a book you've never read. You don't know if it's any good. Yeah. You know, but sometimes I like going back to books that I've read. Um, okay. And sometimes read them and reread them and reread them. And, and a book like that for me is like, uh, for example, there's a book by John Irving called The Hotel New Hampshire. And, and I like going back and reading that book over and over again. And the reason I do that is because in that book, I feel like I'm visiting with family. And I feel like I'm hanging out with people that I know really well and it's comfortable and it's a place I know and they're funny and they're kooky and it's just sort of like, these are my friends and they've got really weird, interesting lives. And I kind of like being part of that. And so that's what the longest journey is. So number one, the longest journey is my favorite game of all time. So I'll get that right out of the way. Wow. Okay. Uh, Okay. But there are lots of games that are in my top, there, you know, most of my top five didn't make their way um, into this. Yeah. For example. So, you know, like Homeworld is one of my top five games, but I didn't put Homeworld on the list. 
Um, but this is this did make it onto the list, and the reason is sort of the same thing I was talking about with with like a, a like the Hotel New Hampshire by John by John Irving, which is that playing this game, and I I do so quite frequently. Um, it's one of those games that I play every so often. Like I have a Half Life Two play every year. Yeah, um, the same is true of the Longest Journey. I always go back and play the Longest Journey again, and it's not because I think the puzzles are going to be different the next time. It's not because I don't know where to go or that I have to discover things by this point. I already know everything that I need to do. Um, the reason is because I'm hanging out with my friends. And the people in this world are authentic but interesting. They're not boring, but they're also not so over the top as to be unbelievable they're like real people in that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. You spend time with them and you're like spending time with an art student who can just suddenly go to a new world. And it's not like, it's not like I think people actually do that or that I think that there are two worlds named Stark and Arcadia and one's full of magic and one's full of technology kind of thing. It's, you know, which is kind of what the setting of the game is. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason, the reason I like it is the reason you, I like say uh, a lot of Stephen King novels is what happens if you put ordinary people in extraordinary situations. Um, and it feels a lot like that way to me with the longest journey is that even when you go to the world of magic, they still have their ways and they still do things their way. And so they still feel like real people, like people that you would meet. Um, and you're also putting them in an extraordinary situation, just as much as you're putting the people of, you know, this sort of near future earth, place called stark um you know they're they're ordinary people that you would know like the main character is a is an art student yeah. you know who suddenly has dreams about dragons and and you know you're you're in her the very first scene is the the main character in her underwear talking to a dragon and and so it's like okay you have this ordinary person and it was also important at the time because you, you also then had, you know, a woman starring in a game. And at a time when that was no big, you know, it was great. And you didn't have a bunch of people complaining about the fact that somebody put a woman in a game and therefore <laughs> they're trying to make some kind of statement. No, this is just a really fascinating woman who is making her way through life. And then I started seeing other things like her, her landlady um, is like, her landlady is a lesbian and they, and they, and you know, it's just, it's just right out in the open and they talk about it and it's no big deal. And that was really important to me when I first played this game and, and just, but just like you might in real life where your landlady might just happen to be a lesbian and you meet her girlfriend and it's no big deal. And, and so that's what I love about this game and why I would want it on the desert Island with me. Not because I haven't played it before a bunch of times and because it's going to constantly surprise me with something new because it won't. Um, but I still get to spend you know, I mean, so when you first play, you'll probably spend 30 hours with it, but I get to spend like 12 hours with it um, and get to hang out with my peeps and they're, they're <laughs> yeah. comfortable and they know me and I know yeah. them and uh, they're awesome and they have, you know, they have stresses and they have things that they love and things that they hate and they, they run from their problems sometimes and they, you know, and I'm, and I'm there to guide them through it and they're, they're pretty cool with it. And I also get to go to space. <laughs> so, and, and it's it always the, good. It's always good. 
and it has the great and i don't i want people to play it and see for themselves but it it also has one of those great kind of twists where you know how with a lot of fiction you know you it's sort of like you know you 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 sort of know what the grand quest is and you're out there to fulfill your you know your big destiny and it and the ending takes all of that and sticks it right on its head um and and I won't say anything more because I want people to play it. And, yeah, and people really should play it. But you know, it, it does that. It gets to the end, and suddenly you realize that you've you've played the most important role that you could possibly play in this story. But in the end, you're still just an art student. And <laughs> I don't know. There's 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 something pretty great about that. You're you're just sort of hanging out with really great people. Um, you know, even when some of them are strange, you know, you've got aliens that, that don't speak in a tent, you know, don't speak in tents, you know, they, because they exist in all times and you've got a really foul mouthed hacker dude and, and, uh, you know, cool dragons that you make friends with and, and, uh, you know, and, and it always, and it's diverse, you know, there are people from different cultures, you know, involved and, and it, and it's not a big deal. It's just like, and that, that developer red thread games, they're now red thread games. It was Funcom developed it, but it was, it was the work of, um, one of my favorite people in all of games who is Ragnar Tornquist. And he's, you know, eventually after he left Funcom, he, they were able to make dreamfall chapters. Cause of course they made dreamfall, the follow up to the longest journey. And yes, now dreamfall that, chapters is with yeah, us. Cause that, that was what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you about how you felt about dreamfall and then, dreamfall chapters coming up i i really like dreamfall a lot um dreamfall chapters i haven't finished yet even which is a surprise right because you would think that somebody would play the the second follow-up to their favorite game of all time but i was waiting um for that because they released it um episodically unlike the the first two games yeah i was waiting for the whole thing I played the first episode, but then I was waiting for the rest and I was just going to replay it all. And then the final episode finally came and I've just been so busy um, that I, I haven't made the chance. And of course, when I sit down and I'm like, I'm going to play a game. It's like, oh, it's Overwatch time then. <laughs> so, but but yeah, that's that's why Longest Journey comes with me, not just because it's an amazing game, which it is, but it also comes with me because having it with me is the same as opening up a a book that you've read a zillion times before and opening up to a random page and just starting to read because you know, the people and they're, they're your family and you're going to spend some time with family. Excellent. Well, that is, we should have, we should have saved that for last. Because <laughs> <But laughs> the next game we're going to move on to is, uh, I, I think I can understand why you've chosen it. I, I've never played this game myself, but it seems like a very quick play for a few bits uh but will last you forever uh for as long as you would be trapped so if there is any music let's listen to some music from this next game and let's go straight into the penultimate game
moving on now from Kevin's favorite game of all time to a very interesting choice. A game developed by the developer You versus the Internet and published by Microsoft Studios for Windows Phone, uh, Windows 8 and 10, and I think it's on <laughs> iOS as well. Um, it is, and on Android, yeah. It's, uh, on, uh, it's one of those games that's on pretty much every platform. It's a word puzzle game. Um, it's called Wordament. Surprise! Bet you never <laughs> heard of this game. I so- have not. <laughs> You've caught so me out. This, this game just kind of like when I was typing this list up, it was like, Oh, it just came right out. It's just like, I just put my hands to the keyboard. It's like, Oh, there it is. I didn't have to think about it really. And and I knew that this is going to be a hard sell. Right. Um, but first of all, let me say that wordament is probably the game I've played more hours of than any game combined than, than any other individual game in the last five years. All right. And so let me, let me say this, whether I'm, at home or not at home or on a freaking desert island, sometimes you gotta poop. All right? <laughs> and when you gotta poop, you need something to do. You do. And that's what Wordament is for. So this is interesting because I'm not really a mobile gamer in that sense. I don't play, typically, I don't play games on phone. And the times I've tried to play big things on a phone or on a tablet or whatever, like I was playing some square RPG that was for uh, mobile only. And I played maybe 10 hours and I was like, this is stupid. Um, and then I've played other things that were really good. I played lots of things on phone that are really good. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's not that I don't think it's a viable platform. My problem is that when I'm playing anything on my phone, I'm playing something that's good for the commute or it's good for bathroom time, or it's because I have five minutes to kill. And I want something to do with my time. And Wordament is quite possibly the most perfect word game. Um, and it's really well put together. Um, so the idea is that you basically, you have a grid, a four by four grid filled with letters and you have to trace out words. But the twist is that it's a, a persistent game. So when you pull it up, it's always counting down. Um, so you might pull it up and it might be like 20 seconds into the game, into the round already because it's a, it's a tournament game. And so everybody is always playing at this across the world is playing at the same time, playing with the same board. And at the end, everybody is ranked. And so it's a score chasing game, but it's a score chasing game in which the highest score is established by the best player in the world for that particular round. Okay. And so what happens is, and it's snappy because rounds are only two minutes long. So you have two minutes to do the thing and then, and then it outlines what your score is, you know, gives you all your stats and then it gives you the whole world and shows you where you fell. And so you've got, the snappiness of being quick, you've got the um, the actual gameplay itself, which is discovering words, which has a time limit. And so you feel pressured to find as many words as you can. But, you know, the very nature of finding words in this way, you know, is what makes, you know, word finds and crossword puzzles and things like that. And, and you know whatever kind of thing, like when you buy one of those puzzle books at the drugstore or whatever, or when you're at the airport and you need something to do on the flight, you know, they're, they've been popular for years because they're just fun. There's something fun 
about finding the words in the grid. Yeah. Um, or about doing the crossword puzzle or about solving the logic problem or whatever it is. Um, and so you've got that very nature of, of that. And then you've just got the score chasing bit. It's like, I want to be the best in the world. And it's really <laughs> hard to be the best in the world. Typically when you play, you've got maybe depending on the time of day. I mean, it's going to be biggest in U S it's usually like most popular when it's like U S U S time. All the people in the U S are awake. Okay. Um, so, you know, you might have somewhere between 500 people and 1200 people, you know, 1500 people sometimes if it's best playing at any given time. Um, and I have only been now I have probably played 400 hours of this game over the last years. And that's just from playing it on the bus or sitting down in the bathroom or I must poop a lot. but that that is so much time if you were to let's say that there was a time when i might have been playing you know between taking the train to work or whatever you know there were times where i could end up playing an hour of wordament a day and you come you you multiply that by several years and suddenly it's not that hard to imagine that you've been yeah played that many hours (laughs) um and it just it keeps me hooked because they they do such a good job and there are, there are a couple of clones out there of Wordament and they're shitty and the reason they're shitty is because in some cases the letters are just plopped down they're just random in some cases because the 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 uh, the interface is really bad um, it's sort of again like the testament to Blizzard which is you can you can copy it. But that doesn't mean that you capture its soul. Yeah. And uh, and a lot goes into creating that soul. Sort of like threes in a lot of way. Like a lot of people look at that. Uh, what, what, what was the name of the, the big clone? The 2048? Yeah. Um, it, which yeah. was a clone. But it's not even as good. You know, it doesn't capture that thing that threes has. Um, and so it's the same thing. It's like, it's the original and it's the best Wordament is the original of its kind and it's the best of its kind and I still play it. You know, I've, I've, you know, when I came to Belgium and it was time to get a new phone, one of the first things I did when I got the new phone, um, is to, uh, is to get Wordament on it. And, and that, that's kind of a, a tribute to how much I've, I've loved this game over the, the last several years. And, uh, how much I get out of it. So yeah, when I'm on the desert island and it comes time to poop, Wordament's what's coming with me. Excellent. Well, you can have it to uh, do your business in the desert while passing the time, having some fun. <laughs> well, thank God it's a big desert. I can just cover up with some sand and move. You don't even need to do that. You can just Nobody do whatever you have. Like, there's no one around. Nothing I'm not going to gonna be... let it sit there. I still have to live there. <laughs> but you can just keep be... migrating like the don't characters in Journey. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god we got one left we do we do have wow. one left um we are going to move on to your final game now kevin and it's been such a pleasure having you on today so i'm very interested i am always interested in space games like they have they have an itch in my brain that they mm-hmm. are constantly niggling at and scratching but i've never really found one i enjoyed immensely and I, w- I remember being, when I was working at Rockstar, there was a big group of people who were talking about X Rebirth. Like, oh my god, X Rebirth is going to be amazing. It's, you know, it's the next X game, and it turned out absolutely abysmal. It was really bad. It was so bad. 
But the next game is from that series. And it's going back to the good old days of the X series. So let's listen to some music from this next game. And let's go and talk about Kevin's final game. We are now mm-hmm. on to your final game now. And this game is developed by Egosoft. And it was published by multiple different companies, depending on where you are in the world. It was Enlight in North America. And uh, in mm-hmm. Europe, it was Deep Silver. Um, mm-hmm. It's for PC, Mac, and Linux. It's It was released in 2005. It's a, a bit older than I thought it was, actually. Um. It's X3 Reunion. Mm-hmm. Kevin, why is the Hello. final game that you're taking with you X3 Reunion? Uh, all right. Well, I don't want to make this all about No Man's Sky, but I'm totally going to make it about No Man's Sky for just a <laughs> second. So I am on record about how I feel about No Man's Sky, which is that I don't like No Man's Sky. Um, I don't think it's a very good or interesting video game. Um, that said, I can see why a lot of people really love it. And, and I've, you know, so I've not made a big deal out of it because I, this is a game that's gotten a lot of attention for better or for worse. It's also been a highly successful game, um, as it, as it happens. Yeah. But, uh, I really, really, um, I really was disappointed by No Man's Sky. And one of the reasons I was disappointed by No Man's Sky is that games like X3 exist, um, X3 coming in that, you know, that wonderful tradition of space trading and combat simulators, um, games in which you go about the universe trading and earning new ships and completing missions and doing cool things and buying low and selling high and that sort of thing. Um, and X3, when it came out, just like all of the X games, was not exactly uh, bug-free. <laughs> Because, I mean, I mean this was game in... didn't get the highest of reviews either. It, not at the beginning. It was, it was no. no X Rebirth, though. It was not yeah. a piece of flaming garbage. Shit, it was just a yeah. good game yeah. that was on the precipice of being an amazing game. It just had a few things to iron out, as opposed to a game that could never be good, like X Rebirth. So, obviously, there's a big difference there. Um, but it was good when it came out and then became awesome after a few patches and, and after some time. Um, and you know, I, I bring up no man's sky specifically because I, I think a lot of, for, for some people at least, and for probably for many, many people, the whole idea of travel, you know, a, a game in which you really do travel through space and 
buy low and sell high and sort of discover secrets and go from planet to planet is uh is very novel um and it is novel in the way it's done in no man's sky in the sense that i can now take my you can take your craft and land on the planet and then you have all those other cool you know you have those planet side things that you can do i almost said cool but it's a cool <laughs> idea that doesn't re- that i don't think is actually really very cool in practice but x3 aside from the fact that you you know aside from the land on a planet and explore the flora and the fauna and, and learn alien languages type stuff really is that, I mean, X3 is, is that except extraordinarily good. Um, it gives you a lot of different things to do out in space. It's beautiful out there, but not beautiful in a garish way. Um, it's absorbing. It has many different it has different races that you can communicate with, um, factions that you can piss off or make friends with, and it's got fantastic combat and it's got a really great sense of progression. You know when you know that you often want from a game like this, where you feel like you're getting better and better ships, and and you know to go back to the No Man's Sky thing for a minute, like in No Man's Sky, you get more space for stuff and you you get better stuff but your ship never feels you know you're flying a different ship but you wouldn't necessarily know it it's not Um, your ship is it it's just something you it's almost like a gta car situation where you just get in any car and it never feels like yours it's just a tool that you're using whereas in games like the x series when you get a ship, it's like your pride and joy. It's what it's you take really care of. It's a really huge deal. Yeah. You want to take care of it. But it also you also are having to make decisions about what your role really needs to be. Um, you know, when you take a trading ship, you really are taking a trading ship. You're not going to want to be, you know, in combat. You're going to be slower and you're going to be stiffer and and that kind of thing. And and uh so there really is a sense of ownership over that because they all they really do feel different. And of course in X3 over time you get to sort of you know it goes beyond your ship. It, it becomes, you know, about, you know, some, you know, a, a, sort of a fleet of them of 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 uh AI characters that you bring to the bring to the table and and uh there's just and of course then there's space itself there's that extraordinary sense of being able to go out and fly into the beyond and explore that and see what there is to see and and uh you know few games do that better for me than x3 reunion um and then of course space the combat's just so fun you have to get used to it um you know i think most space combat games they're just like with driving games where there's a, a huge disparity of what it's going to feel like, you know, it could it be, you know, is it, you know, Gran Turismo? Is it like the, the ultimate of simulators? Yeah. Or is it going to be something like a split second or burnout where it doesn't feel real? It's just all about being super fun. And, and X3 sort of, I mean, as far as the simulation can go when it's simulating something that we don't actually have in real life, but you know, it, it's certainly on the more simulate side of things, but it's still fun and arcadey at the same time. So, Which is a perfect like balance a- because sometimes you have to straddle the line between games like EVE, which can be maybe too far into the simulating world of things. Yeah. <laughs> and then maybe a bit too much like No Man's Sky, which is like just unrealistic arcadey 
just get a spaceship and fly everywhere. And that yeah. is sort of, to be a good space game, like a, even Elite maybe leans a little too much to the simulator. As much as Elite yeah. Dangerous is really fun and stuff like that, it's sometimes a little too mundane in its trying to be like a space simulator. The flying yeah. to a space station, docking correctly and not damaging your ship for. I mean, fear X3 does that more. It's in the same realm. As Elite Dangerous, more or less, but you know, you it's just like in Elite Dangerous in some ways, you know, eventually you can earn things that allow you to dock easily, and and yeah, you know what I mean. Like over time, you you sort of build up um, gameplay, uh, you know, conveniences, as it were. Not something that I usually like in games. I don't like it when when you have to earn a convenience that you feel should actually be there the first time around, um, but. It sort of works for me in X3. It works for me in Elite Dangerous too. Um, but uh, in the end, you, you know, I let's say I could have taken Elite Dangerous with me as well, but I wanted something that has a little bit more direction, something that makes me feel like I have a little bit more purpose to what it is that I'm doing and the place that I am. You know, something with a little bit more story and something a little more straightforward about it. Um, rather than just coming through, oh, you know, here's a thing from the Galactic News Network. You know, in this case, I'm actually talking to different, uh, you know, to different races and and uh, straight off the bat. It's been a while since I played Elite Dangerous, so I don't know yeah. all the things that have come since since I first played. But X X3 really just is one of those great space games. And go play it. Um, it's available on Steam. and uh, Still looks good now. Still looks, Still looks good. Make sure not to get X Rebirth. I hear that it's certainly improved, but I yeah, you don't. Know, <laughs> some things just can't. They can only go so far. Yeah, you know when when you know when you have a broken leg. You know, some you know you can get the you know or you know. It's always going to be cast put on, but you're not going to really be you know a, a, a professional sprinter probably after that anymore. Um, who knows? You never know. But uh, it's one of those things where it's like that. This game is just already way off base from the very beginning. You you basically have to just make a new game. <laughs> and I used to say the same thing about Final Fantasy fourteen, and then they did do that. They did. <laughs> <laughs> so X Rebirth, uh, Rebirth. Yeah. So I, hopefully they don't do that. That would be silly. But I feel bad because you can see what they're going for with that game. But there's this just this major attempt to I think sort of you know the idea that maybe we'll be able to bring this to Xbox One or to PlayStation Four and and appeal to that that audience that they perceive is there. Um, but in the end, they made a game that that isn't gonna that didn't make anybody happy. So and 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 that's a real that's shame awful. because you can see the little bits. I mean, you can you can land on space stations and walk about space stations, and there was a little bit of that No Man's Sky kind of thing going on um, before No Man's Sky came out. It might it may be a space station and not a you know not not a planet, but you know you get out, walk around, you know, talk to the people on the on the space station and and uh, make some friends. Although in X Rebirth, you did that with the most. <laughs> ridiculous character models that said the stupidest things you've ever heard a character in a video game say. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, X3 is awesome. Um, and I think people should play that. And, uh, you know, I, I thought a lot about what space game, because again, I was like, if I'm on a desert island, I want a space game. And I went through a lot of this. So if, if 
you know, you want to consider any uh, like honorable mentions and kind of interested in different space games. Homeworld was an obvious potential um, for me, but most people know that Homeworld is great, even if they've never played Homeworld. But Homeworld is fantastic, um, you know, and you can go and get the Gearbox um, re- remake, which is or HD version, which is has some problems, but is still extraordinarily good. And uh, but there's all I also almost did spa- a game called Space Rangers Two instead, another game almost nobody listening to this podcast would probably have heard of. Um, but that game is actually a really funny, interesting mix of space sim, real-time strategy game, um, like top-down strategic combat simulator. Um, um, like humor-based uh, text adventures. And it's really hard to describe what that game is. But if you've never played Space Rangers 2, you should play Space Rangers 2 or the game that came before it. You can buy both, I think, in a package um, on Steam as well. So that almost okay. made it in. But uh, X, X3 wins. X3 Space wins. Part. Well, X3 is the final game that you are taking with you today, as long as, uh, alongside the other seven games that you're taking with you to the desert from Journey as well, which will be a certainly interesting stay. Hopefully, it's not too hot. Uh, I'm going to assume that it's comfortable and that mm. uh, there's like, I don't know, maybe I'll find a cactus somewhere. <laughs> well, Kevin, Probably it not, has but... been an absolute pleasure having you here today talking about these games. Thank you so much. No, for thanks for inviting me. I had a lot of fun. I'm glad. But I once again have a surprise question Oh, that you did not know about. It's the oh, last right. question that I ask every every one of my guests. Uh, before I ship them off. And uh, it's it's switching from games to consoles. And in this sort of fictional setting, if you could only take one games console with you, oh, barring, barring PC, think about the back catalogue, uh, you know, of any games console that's been released, the sort of titles that have stood out to make a console stand out itself. If there is one games console mm. you could take with you, what console would it be? See, now you put me in a really bad position. I'm it's a glad. toss up between <laughs> it's a toss up between two for me, although they both come from the same company. Um, but okay, okay, I'm gonna go. Uh, presuming that I still, even though I can't like ask for somebody to come and rescue me, that I still get full like all the full online functionality that I expect. Yeah. Um, I'm a go with the PlayStation 4. Okay. So what was um, the other choice? Was it the PlayStation 2? No, it was the Vita. Oh. So <laughs> uh, I, I chose the PlayStation 4 because I, it gives me, first of all, it gives me what I think, if, if I'm going to want stuff from the current generation, it's going to give me the, the things I, the exclusives that I think are going to be more interesting to me. Um, so I get to have things like Bloodborne. I'm not so much interested in, in Halo and Forza and things that I associate as exclusives with uh, Xbox One um, and the Xbox brand. Um, yeah. So I'm going to probably want new looking stuff. And so PlayStation 4 seems to be sort of the the way to go with that. But I also get um, lots of PlayStation 3 games since since I'm going to assume that I get totally free PlayStation Plus. 
and and stuff like that so that i can so i, I want to play i want to play the like, rules but okay yeah I, okay that's fine whatever who cares about the rules <laughs> but you know then it, i'm going to presume that i get access to a catalog of playstation 3 games as well as a giant catalog of playstation 2 games um so for example i i downloaded um dark cloud 2 because i wanted to play dark cloud 2 and i downloaded that on the ps4 and i get to play that on the ps4 and and just easy peasy, right? Um, yeah, very simple, very quick. Yeah, and and so that's the kind of thing that I want. If if I want the biggest catalog of games that I'm personally interested in, and you've taken the the PC away with me, you giant asshole, <laughs> then <laughs> emulate. You can emulate pretty much anything. So yeah, it has to I be know. there has to be a line. There is a line drawn in the sand of the desert you're on. Kevin, and it cannot be crossed. So I'm choosing. I'm choosing the PlayStation Four, and the Vita would have been much along the same arguments if I had chosen the Vita with the with the nice addition that um, I get to play it. You know, with with a little screen, and, and it's a little more portable. But who cares on a desert island? What am I going to be doing? Yeah. Um, so PlayStation Four wins, and you know, I didn't really even seriously. Con- I mean. I don't know. This sounds like I'm suddenly participating in a console war when I didn't want to be. It's it's more about my personal <laughs> taste and how much catalog I get and which, ex, you know, all things being equal, which exclusives are going to be a little bit more interesting to me. Um, but I, I honestly, I didn't really think too much about missing out on, on Xbox stuff as a result. Um, and I simply don't have the nostalgia factor for Nintendo so I know a lot of people would have, say, chosen the Wii U or the DS, or the 3DS, I should say, just simply because of the the nostalgia for Nintendo games along with the quality of Nintendo games, but also for stuff yeah. like the Wii U, like the back catalog of Nintendo stuff. But I don't because I don't have that nostalgia factor, I'm not as interested in going... I, I'm much more interested in having like all the old PS2 RPGs during the great you know, JRPG era um and not so much interested in in having all the platformers from the great platformer era if that makes sense yeah just because so i'm that's just genre, more of a personal taste yeah me. that genre is your genre rpgs it would make a lot more sense for you to have an rpg than a mario game for example yeah and not that i don't love mario games but i you know i, I also tend to be less forgiving about the repetition that we see in you know, in in Nintendo as a rule, I think Nintendo tends to get like kind of a free pass, both from the media and its fans. Um, something that sort of irritates me even now. Um, the, the kind of a holdover from my critic days where I'm like, but I you, you need to give me a better argument, for example, of like why is this Pokemon actually better than the last three? You know, you got to work harder to convince <laughs> me of this. So, that, but that's what I mean. I don't have like that nostalgia yeah. wrapped up in, in Nintendo yeah. partially because, you know, I, I did have Nintendo consoles, but then I had a long period of time where PC was basically where I did all of the stuff. Um, so I missed out on a lot of the heyday. I missed out on stuff like the, I didn't have a SNES originally, for example. And so okay. that's probably the most important in, Nintendo console. Especially in um, terms of RPGs. Right. And, you know, in terms of other things too, like, you know, you know, there, of course, there was Zelda on the NES, but then, you know, the, the great Zeldas came later, um, and I was a little late to the party. 
So that's why I sort of don't have quite the Nintendo love that a lot of other people do because I just felt like there were, you know, I was getting different kinds yeah. of experiences. And so I developed that nostalgia for other things. Like you start bringing out, uh, oh gosh, I don't know. You have a Paradroid remake and I'm, and I'm way down, but nobody knows what that is. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's the best game that was on the Commodore 64. So, but that's you, what I mean. That's, do you know what? I think... If I remember correctly, Paradroid has appeared on Final Games before. I can't if remember. If you had Justin Calvert, it. then he would have mentioned Paradroid, <laughs> but you probably didn't Someone have mentioned Justin Paradroid Calvert. before. I can't remember who it was. I'll have to go I mean, back and check. It's actually been um remade by indie folks here and there and everywhere. Like you'll you'll be able to go out there and and look up uh Paradroid revisits. Just like You'll find ones for all sorts of older games, like just kind of individual people going out there. And it's like, oh, this game needs a remake, so I'm going to make it because it's just, you know, a simple thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's just it's the original Paradroids. It's just wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody well, knows it. <laughs> well, Kevin, the the uh, PlayStation 4 is also going with you along alongside the eight games as well. Um, we have unfortunately come to the end now and you will have to be sent off, sent from Belgium to the desert. Um, but just before you go, uh, please tell the wonderful listeners who have made it this far, uh, basically how to find you (laughs) on Twitter, uh, what they should be checking out, like what Larry and studios are doing, what you're doing and that kind of thing. So a little personal pimping. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Okay. You had a you had a small bit of pimping at the beginning, but now you can go full. I pimp. did. You know more about me than I do, so I don't know why you don't just do it. But uh, <laughs> so, uh, oh gosh, what was it? Yeah, because I I don't get Twitter. a bonus at the end of the year if it sells well. That's why. Oh, I don't know if I get one either. <laughs> <laughs> so on Twitter, you can follow me. It's Fiddle Cub, Fiddle like a violin and Cub like a little bear. So Fiddle Cub on Twitter like that. Um, and you can usually find me on everything else with the same username. So if you're looking for me somewhere else and don't know how to find me, it's probably that too. Um, on I'm fiddle, fiddle cub hashtag 1835 on, uh, battle.net. If you want to play overwatch with me, although I typically play on, I usually play on European server, but I can switch servers. You just got to let me know that you're going to play on us server. Um, so I can switch, um, <laughs> gosh. And, and of course now I'm working on two games. I am part of the team at Larian studios working on divinity original sin two, which is now available in early access on steam for a someday to be announced final release date. <laughs> and you can put the same release date on my other project that I'm making with cleaver soft with people like the incredible rich Siegel, um, who is heading up the development of, of earth Knight. So earth Knight, if you don't know, you should, you can YouTube it. It's really cool. It's basically uh, a platformer where you run across the backs of dragons. Um, it's uh, an automated runner, but don't let that scare you off because it's awesome. And if you don't believe me, then what can I do? I'll just tell you to go and look at the YouTube videos and see how cool the art style looks. And it's going to be hard and fun. And it's got a little bit of a spelunky thing going on to it. So you should really look out for that. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Kevin. As I said, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on today. I hope you've enjoyed uh, picking through these games. I know it can be tough nailing them down. 
Um, but I think you did a superb job. A superb th- those old critic skills have not gone away. Um, you've done a superb job of convincing me about some of these games that I should definitely try that I haven't. Totes. Excellent. Well, thank you once again for listening to Final Games. This has been episode 36. And as always, you can find us on SoundCloud. You can also find us on iTunes and you can rate and review on there. Please do, because it really does help out the show. Um, So that would be great. Um, uh, What else can you do? Oh, yes, you can also email us at uh, finalgamespodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Twitter uh, at Final Games Show. And you can also find me at Liam BME. Thank you once again for listening to Final Games, and I hope you'll join me again next week. Goodbye.